The topic of our today's conversation concerns every one of us and is a subject of many debates of the modern society. Today we are going to be talking about such fundamental phenomenon as consciousness. What is consciousness? What is its nature? Where do thoughts come from? How are they formed? And are they even our own? There are many unanswered questions which we haven't been asking even though we face this phenomena every day. This was so until the book Alatra was published and gave us answers to all these questions and explained this phenomena. Alatra International Public Movement is an association of volunteers around the world with goodwill and a goal to bring back good morals and spiritual values. The volunteers of Alatra IPM undertake educational social projects and scientific research in various disciplines of science. After the release of programs with Igor Mikhailovich Danilov, in which he talks about human nature, society, consciousness and thoughts, we started to get a lot of letters with questions and suggestions from experts from all over the world. Responding to this public inquiry, Alatra TV team decided to offer specialists in various fields – psychology, psychiatry, clinicians and people whose professional career involves studying the work of consciousness and psyche – to join the efforts in studying these issues. To achieve this, a series of meetings takes place on the basis of Alatra TV in the form of a professional game. This is a perfect way to develop any branch of science. Physicists, for example, have been using this form of discussion for quite some time and quite effectively. The Big Bang theory, the string theory and other relevant questions have been easily debated in such form of a game by young scientists as well as by Nobel Prize laureates without damaging their reputation. After talking to several professionals, we decided to try and have a discussion about psychiatric matters in the same form of a game. In the program, Sigurd Mikhailovich Danilov has brought up topics and problems concerning every man and society as a whole. These concerning problems are relevant not only to our today's life, but also our past and possibly future life. Let's take a look at what he says about human nature. Please play it for us. The first thing a person has to accept is the fact that he is a human, to become aware of his spiritual and material natures, to understand that he has two arteries, both God and Devil, they are much closer than these arteries for him. When a person understands this, it's already easier. Then it's enough to understand that a person doesn't control his consciousness, but rather the consciousness controls a person. This already unites one's hands and gives one an opportunity to learn how the system works, because not having learned it, it's impossible to win. It turns out that a person doesn't even know who the devil inside him is, how he acts. Of course he doesn't know. If we ask, does anyone know who the devil is? What does consciousness draw a picture of? Yes, I myself have encountered this. Some sort of an ape-like creature with a tail and horns which is running around and doing something. Well, one can look at the devil, anyone can look, in the mirror. It is matter, it is material, it is our thoughts. All this is exactly what belongs to the devil. And is it possible to see a person in the mirror? No, it's impossible. A person, as a personality, is a spiritual component, and it is not matter, not at all.
it's clear that no one will discuss this theory, but let's talk about it in the form of a game, taking into consideration our practical experience and knowledge. Because this topic is relevant to everyone. If physicists can do it, why not us? Please, go ahead. What is consciousness? For example, in psychiatry, it's like a cornerstone. It's very important to define what it is, because usually the nature of mental diseases is related to a disorder of consciousness functioning. So what is it? Where is it? How to identify it? Modern psychiatry doesn't answer this question. And now most scientists still suppose that consciousness is a product of the brain neurons' activity. They don't even accept the latest scientific achievement that consciousness is a separate field structure, which has a completely different nature, and therefore the interaction between consciousness and the brain happens, let's say, on a different basis. And it is a key point, depending on how we are going to perceive it. But it seems to be already a well-known fact that consciousness can be described as a field structure. Yes, it is accepted as a hypothesis. In most cases, it is accepted by clinical specialists as a hypothesis, because in the medical textbooks, in the medical schools and universities, it is taught that consciousness, after all, why is everything focused on brain chemistry? Because when we are treating mental disorders, we put chemistry at the basis, believing the disorder of chemical processes in the brain causes mental disorders. We are searching for consciousness in the brain, and somehow our attention is concentrated specifically on this search, that's the situation we are currently having in traditional psychiatry. And this particular view has brought us to a standstill, which is why we continue searching, of course. An academic approach explains consciousness as the product of a brain's work. That is why chemistry determines the inner state, emotions, the content of thoughts, etc. Well, this is an academic approach in modern psychiatry. It will be in any textbook. Taking into account the fact that we have been relying on this particular view for quite a long period of time, we are determining chemicals and chemical influence on behavior and behavior as a fundamental treatment. That is to say, we are basically trying to fix a human's behavior by alerting his chemical balance. To simplify this, the reason for all mental diseases is primarily a behavioral disorder. So it's believed that consciousness is matter. A core state of matter is consciousness. And just chemicals can affect consciousness, right? In traditional understanding, yes. In traditional understanding, yes. What is the origin of thoughts then? Since according to the traditional understanding, my thoughts depend on what I have eaten. Because a certain amount of micro-elements have entered my body. To put it another way, the multifunctioning in the chemical process of the brain is the result of the imbalanced work in consciousness. And that is believed to be the basis of all. That is to say, the brain chemistry is secondary after all. Of course, it's secondary. It should have already been obvious. Even tried. In science, in clinical practice, let's take, for example, depressions. When a person at least just starts to think positively, the level of serotonin increases. 
That is, it does not increase from antidepressants, which trigger some chemical reactions, but the level of serotonin increases when a person just begins to pay attention to sunlight, to the blue sky, and so deliberately brings himself up. By doing physical exercises, going for walks, directing thoughts in a positive line, and having a positive outlook on life, all of these cause the level of serotonin to change and rise. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter of what is called a good mood. That is, in response to a good mood, the level of serotonin rises, and not vice versa, as modern psychiatry believes. There are proofs to that, otherwise, if mood swings depended only on the chemical disorder, this would not happen. And once a person starts thinking positively, his brain starts working differently. All long-term practicing psychiatrists know that about 40% of mental disorders are healed without the chemical intervention. And often, especially if not to intervene into a patient's treatment from the very beginning, there can be a recovery. After all, what is consciousness impact? Is it neurons? No. So what is consciousness? A simple question, to which no one has given an answer as of today, right? And no one was able to take it or touch it. Well, consciousness is nothing other than ordinary information. And the question is, whom does it originate from? Our consciousness is like a tool of the same devil, who they say doesn't exist. But he exists, and he is in each one of us, because it is his tools that work in our consciousness. And studying it gives an understanding that thoughts in our head are not ours, especially when they are directed towards disunity, squabbles and resentment, thoughts that are directed towards, let's say, superiority over someone, at our egocentrism, at our arrogance. And first and foremost, we must gain an understanding that our consciousness is the devil's tool. And this is not a joke. Could you please comment on the information presented in the video we just watched? It would be interesting to hear the opinion of experts in this field. I totally agree with what Igor Mikhailovich has said. And generally speaking, modern science is approaching the same conclusions about the nature of consciousness, that consciousness is not a part of the brain, all the more so the personality is not a part of brain's consciousness, and it is something completely different, meaning that it has a field nature, it is a physical field. And this was also proposed by scientists who were the founders of such branches of science as neurosurgery and neurophysiology. For example, Wilder Penfield, John Eccles, Vladimir Bechterev, Natalia Bechtereva. So there is evidence that this is true. The academic science, nonetheless, doesn't accept this idea and continues addressing psychological disorders on a chemical level with chemical substances. This leads science and almost all the work of scientists to a dead end. 
because there is a completely wrong attitude, wrong understanding of what happens to the human, what true human nature is, nor is there knowledge of his dual nature. It's great that now we have this opportunity to talk about it freely and consider alternative points of view, which speak the truth, in fact. Yet we are able to share our ideas, search for evidence in our practical work, in introspection, in observation of the work of our own consciousness meaning observation of its manifestations through thoughts, emotions and desires, as well as the quality of these thoughts, emotions and desires. That's when not only the nature of consciousness can be discovered, but also its true intentions. When thinking is considered as fundamental content of consciousness, we can read in textbooks about its features – analysis, synthesis, generalization, concretizing, abstract, logical, figurative, concrete. But no one says what kind of thoughts we have, and in textbooks we will not find it. In fact, there is a quality of human thoughts, and actually, behind every parameter which involves now, there is a lot of research. For example, science knows that person's thoughts are mainly egocentric, negative, and even aggressive at 80%, that human thinking unproductive at 80%. It means that we don't learn or investigate anything while thinking, by default. That is how our consciousness manifests itself by default, if we don't deliberately guide its work. And then, this is also known that thoughts are mainly of the past and of the future. The thoughts are often chaotic and obtrusive. I mean, we can't stop it at will. We can't think about something intentionally or keep an image in attention for a long time. And all these parameters are known. Then all this is manifested in the problems with which people come, and what is happening, in fact, in our consciousness. It's enough to observe these thoughts. There is one more question about the observer, that is something in a human that goes beyond the limits of consciousness. This is also denied by modern science. Although it's a banal experiment, we can observe thoughts, desires, emotions, sensations, then we are outside this system. This is a tried proposition of the system analysis. Otherwise, we would not be able to do it, to observe and at the same time to direct the content of it to the other side. I mean, to choose a direction of the thoughts. That is why… Interesting. This means that thoughts don't belong to us. That's right. It would be interesting to understand what is their nature and where do they come from. There is a reason why in all languages, including German, we say thoughts come to us. So, even the phrase a thought came to me tells us about the fact that people have known this since ancient times, and that's why this word has appeared, meaning that a thought has come to me rather than has arised in my mind. I have a practical example of a patient who has been visiting a psychiatrist for half a year now. She has been told that all the thoughts in her head are her own, and every thought comes for a reason. Meaning, if she has this thought, it is because she had a certain event in her life or a childhood memory that led to this thought, and now this thought came to her from her subconsciousness. 
So, there is a reason for it. But in reality, this is not true. This woman can see that this is not the underlying reason, and she says, I don't feel any better after the treatment. And during this half a year, she has only been feeling worse. And no one has explained to her that thoughts do not belong to us, and that we don't have to accept them, as they are just like radio waves, and our brain is just like a radio receiver. One more proof that consciousness is not a product of the brain activity. Once I was participating in a conference where Western anesthesiologists were discussing the problem they were facing. Many people that went under the anesthesia said that they could remember everything, each bad word that the doctors were saying during the surgery. They could hear every word the doctor said and even saw themselves, their bodies being operated on. And coming out of anesthesia, this experience traumatized them, because people don't always say good things, not always. Sometimes these were urgent surgeries, and it caused people to develop a post-traumatic disorder and fears. And when Western anesthesiologists faced this dilemma, along with psychiatrists, they decided that the cause of this problem is that anesthesia wasn't deep enough. But this is not so. The term consciousness itself is very interesting. It means shared knowledge. So judging from this terminology, it can be described as the knowledge that belongs to everyone. This is also proof that consciousness is a universal field from which every person can get information. This means that thoughts do not belong to us as they come from this universal field. I watched the programs with Igor Mihailovich Danilov, read the Alatra book, and I got interested, really interested. Such fascinating knowledge is given there. I started to observe myself, and sometimes these thoughts come to my head. They just can't be mine. When you get a thought to yell at a small child who is really not at fault, he's just expressing himself as he can, as he's still learning. And when you get this thought to yell at this child, and if you do yell at him, then you just feel miserable and think, is this really me? It can't be so. After all, a person is dual-natured. From an early childhood we were told that we have a demon on the left shoulder and an angel on the right one. And if we observe ourselves, we will notice that we have good thoughts as well as bad ones. If we listen to the bad thoughts and behave in the corresponding manner, then who do we become? It's truly alien to human nature. I think that thoughts are not the product of the brain activity. Scientists have different approaches. Let's take John Eccles, okay? He said that the work of consciousness can't be interpreted by brain functioning. In practice, when working with people, you meet patients with different diagnoses. And let's say someone has a brain disease, but this has absolutely nothing to do with their thinking. That is to say, brain pathology may occur, but a person thinks positively and feels good. Or another situation, when the brain is functioning well, medically healthy, but the person's way of thinking is completely negative, and it destroys a person as it's hard for him to live this way. That's why, with this example, 
I can't conclude that the brain is consciousness. When consulting a psychologist, patients often say, I didn't want to say that, I didn't want to do that. They mean that they want to get rid of such destructive state because they feel pressure and influence from the outside. To use the terminology given by Igor Mikhailovich in the video, right? These are demons, devils. Many people say it's like demons have attacked me, I can't do anything with myself. That is, they realize that it's not them, it's something alien, they're affected by something. So we are taking this terminology, we are kind of borrowing it, right? And we just define it as a term. But it's important for us to understand this phenomenon, correct? So, does this mean that there are thought forces that can influence a human? Taking into account everything that has been said, including the work of scientists, which has proven that consciousness has a field-like nature, we can conclude that consciousness is like a computer program, just like Igor Mihalovich said, right? And this computer program is just information. And as we know, a computer program can get a virus, meaning another infected program can penetrate into the existing system and make the program work differently. It can either destroy itself or act absolutely different. And does this mean that someone can break into someone else's consciousness? I'm just wondering, because you said people complained about hearing a voice inside their head and feeling some sort of a pressure. Does this mean that certain actions or words were done or said unwillingly? People describe their state this way. The voice tells me to do so. Moreover, they even separate that voice. For instance, a woman can hear a male voice. So, the people describe the state as if it's not theirs, like some kind of pressure which causes discomfort to them, and to handle that, they come for help. So there is also a very important point. Consciousness does not belong to the brain. It is clear and has been already proven by physics. Besides the mentioned conducted researches, there were a lot of other studies like coma, anesthesia, extrasensory capabilities, remote mind reading and so on. There is enough of similar studies in science. We can say that this hypothesis has actually more reasons than the one accepted by orthodox psychiatry and psychology. But what is really hard to get accepted by science and the specialists is the quality of consciousness, what role it plays, what purpose it serves, and how it manifests itself. So this is a more serious obstacle than the fact that consciousness does not belong to the brain. So the idea that consciousness is a tool is being accepted by the majority of the specialists for the moment.
But considering it as an aggressor, as some devil's force, the aggressive force towards the human, this is not being accepted at all. Tatiana, but you've just said that consciousness is 80% negative, as science tells us. Thoughts are negative, pretentious, 80-90% condemnatory in their nature, they are about nothing. So, in general, they are not of any help to solve problems. But does science agree that consciousness, or thoughts, to be exact, are the derivative of consciousness? Yes, so that's why we've got a question here. If it is of such quality by default, and let's say in a case where I intentionally and consciously don't direct the work of my computer the way I need, it will manifest itself in the default way. What is consciousness by definition? We open any textbook, it is a tool reflecting the reality. But we see that, in fact, this is a tool distorting the reality, and pretty much hard distorting, sometimes even upside down. Then again, here is an interesting question, based on the information you are telling us. If science can precisely define, like they can tell in percentage how many thoughts come to the human mind, then why can't science tell us the nature of those thoughts? Who or what is distorting the reality and what is the purpose for that? It can answer on such a basis to this question. Science can answer, but for some reason it's unbeneficial for science to answer this question as it is. What I have mentioned we will not see in the psychology book. Psychologists can say what is written there, but the fact that the quality of thought is like this is not written in the books. And why? After all, this is known. If it were known, people, any person, would have already pondered upon it. Psychologists studied in any university, at any faculty. There is no faculty where psychology is not studied. Anyone would ponder. So what is it then? What is this intelligence? Why is it, roughly speaking, not constructive towards me? Why does it not lead a person to happiness? Yes, if it is so good, then why do psychologists and psychotherapists have so many clients? Yes, but the most important thing is that these qualitative characteristics determine the disturbance of people's psyche and the problems that they bring later on. For example, during the last consultation a young man said, I feel scared even to tell you this now. There was the following situation. I'm driving and I see a car coming towards me. I'm looking for a place to park. The oncoming car, a young beautiful girl, Mercedes, and that's all. And I've noticed the red spot on the bumper, thinking, such a nice car can't be dirty, it somehow flashed in the head. But he noticed that already. I'm turning around the corner, I see an animal hit by a car. It has just been hit, so the woman didn't even come out, didn't stop. There are other people standing nearby watching. And then he describes his state. Prior to that, he was already at the consultation, and he had already learned to observe his thoughts a little, and he already had an experience of such observation. And so he says, those thoughts that came to my mind at that moment, those pictures were terrible. How I could deal with this cruel person who was able to hit this animal and leave it just like that? These thoughts were so scary that even now I'm afraid to tell you about them. He says, I wrote it down, and this is what I am? I am a kind, normal, good, alive person. Where did these terrible, maniacal thoughts come from? He says, how is it so? How should I deal with it? Is it mine? 
And if it's a part of me, how can I accept it? I'm a normal person. Another thing scares me, that one day I won't be able to cope with it. There are a lot of things related to negative thinking and aggression. For example, a woman requested a consultation. I would say that this woman is an absolutely educated person. Her intellectual level is high. And what was her issue? She says, I can't refrain from screaming at all, from being angry at my children. One child is a year old, the second one is three years old. She continues, I'm taking it out on the kids. I'm busy with something. The child comes up to me with a question when I have other plans, and I start to shout at him, start to pull and grab him. No beating, but her aggression is so… And the children are suffering very much, and so is she from all these tastes, thoughts, and it's pretty hard for her to switch, to stop this reaction, she doesn't know how. Okay, I have a very, very good question about this, considering the format of our communication, and since we are just playing. For example, I am a simple person, I want to tell you honestly, I have never turned to any psychologist or other dedicated experts. You are describing situations which other people and I often have to face in life. When I come to you and say that I am feeling some kind of influence on myself which is intrusive, like the voice in my head, some kind of uncontrollable aggression, you, as an expert, what would you recommend me? How should I deal with this? You are an expert, I came to you, took your time, told you about my problem, so what shall we do? First of all, you will be doomed to be diagnosed with something. I will be doomed. It means, if these obsessive thoughts have been present in your life for quite a long time, then experts will determine the nature of the illness and how it's going to develop. Certainly, the therapy will be prescribed accordingly, of course with chemicals, because without them, experts cannot cure the disease of such nature. Well, for example, I am working as a psychologist, and when people come to us with the symptoms that were just described, we say, lucky me, I'm going to have to deal with such patient again, because we, the experts, do not know what to do with it. That is, according to the algorithm of work, we quickly send them off to psychiatrists. And we psychologists do not like patients with such issues. That is, we try to avoid dealing with such people. These thoughts and these voices, those voices, do the doctors not hear them? They do. Of course, everyone can hear them. Only people avoid to talk about it. The doctors themselves, as well as any other person. Who didn't have this, maybe not so clearly expressed, who didn't hear a voice in their head commanding to kill someone? Although, this happens too. I can say this about myself. These are the ones who turn to experts. The statistics can say something about them. Yes, to be honest, such thoughts can be actually observed by any person. I observed them in myself. And psychiatry doesn't answer these questions for me, and doesn't teach me the skills of self-control, and how can I deal? And it does not teach how to observe. When there are such… Yes. For example, I will share my experience. Just recently, I'm standing at the subway station, the train is coming, and I'm standing, of course, at a safe distance. The train is coming up, and I hear this thought. Jump under the train. For what? I'm in a wonderful, good mood. I'm pretty healthy. I have a wonderful family, so everything is fine. There's no reason for me to commit suicide after all, is there? 
And here this thought comes, well, I have experience of observing my thoughts and the work of my consciousness, so I understand where it comes from. I understand that it is the work of consciousness, so I'm not listening to this thought. I'm just standing where I was standing. But another person receiving this kind of thought, often he can act upon it. Okay, great. So we've modeled one scenario. Let's call it traditional, okay? A traditional one. And now we are modeling another scenario in a format of our theme. That approach, yes, it's like that. There is, of course, an alternative situation. And from what? Actually, the alternative situation, I got to know it when I was studying the books of Anastasia Novik, Alatra, Sensei, a series of books, Sensei, as Osmos, and as such, and while watching programs with Igor Mikhailovich Danilo. There is a very simple tool where it all starts. It begins with a simple introspection, with self-observation. Therefore, when a person is starting to observe and write down these thoughts, moving aside from the work of consciousness, separates himself from this, until there is a state of observer, nothing can be changed here at all. In any case, a person will act under the influence of the thoughts, even when they are aggressive, condemning, offensive, fearful or threatening, doesn't matter. You see, without this fundamental point, meaning finding the observer, nothing can be changed. It is also impossible to change anything with pills, as they will only lead to a drug-induced alienation. At that time, yes. That's all. Let's just say that we have made the life safer for both the patient and those around him. That's all. Does the problem go away? No. We would just muffle it for a while, okay? Time goes, if there is no inner change in the person, no understanding, nothing happens, then what changes? Nothing. There may be a short remission, a slightest provocation, or even without it, leads to exacerbation. And that's it. These processes turn into being chronic, long-lasting, and so on. Tatiana has correctly addressed the fact that we need to determine the next and very important concept of human personality. This observer, what is human personality? Please, tell me. Okay, if you as a specialist immediately make a diagnosis, and you can only make a diagnosis when there is an illness, right? So this means we establish the fact that there is an illness. Tell me then, what is this illness that forces a person to kill himself? Yes, like you, Natasha, have just said, the thoughts, namely, the obsessive thoughts about committing suicide, sometimes come. Who did not have such thoughts, especially in adolescence? What kind of illness is it that a mother can take her child and jump off the roof of the house? What kind of illness is it that makes people's roof into oncoming traffic? What kind of illness is this? Or what are these accidents when the child survives after falling from eight-story building window? How do you explain all this? Modern psychiatry is very far from answering these questions. From my teenage years, I remember very well how I imagined myself committing suicide with some kind of sweet pleasure, and how my parents would cry as they would be hurt, and I would die in my grave from a heartbreak. It happened repeatedly when they offended me or said something wrong to me. I remember another moment when I had a conflict with one of my bosses, the head of the institution where I worked. 
And I'm standing on the balcony, not even thinking about this conflict at all, thinking about a completely different thing, observing what's going on outside. And then this thought comes to me, why don't you throw yourself off this balcony and write a note that they pushed you to it? What was it really? Frankly speaking, this thought was so alien to me, and I couldn't figure out where it came from. I understand that it came on the basis of me being offended. But that thought was so shocking that I felt really off. Did you consult with your colleagues? I kept quiet about this and didn't say a word to anyone, as well as about my teenage fantasies. Because who can you tell about this? You think that all people are normal, and it's only you who has this strangeness. But in reality, isn't everyone facing this every day? Simply, even in domestic situations. Okay, as you rightly said, consciousness is a tool for distorting reality, right? As one friend recently told me, he said that in the morning he woke up with his wife in a great mood, but later got in a fight for no good reason. This is generally a classic scheme, okay? The husband and his wife woke up and everything was good, everything was fine. The wife was making breakfast while her husband took a shower. He came out of the bathroom and he did not like how his wife served the table. That is, instead of being grateful for the breakfast, he started yelling at her. While screaming, he did not understand why this was happening. And they seemed to have calmed down, they went to work together, they talked, and then he heard her saying, he said something to her and she replied to him, shut up. And immediately, he says, a cascade of pictures and thoughts rushed over him of what he would do to her for voicing it. And then he thought to himself, no, it can't be that she would say that to me, I should ask again. And he asked, what did you just say? She replied, I said, close the window, it is windy. And how many of these kind of situations happen? After all, very often people just hear something, and it leads to a conflict, right? It's not even something misheard, but rather assumed. So this is a product of vital activity of what? Who and what conducts all of this? Yes, indeed. Since we've touched upon the issues of the illness, what kind of illness makes a human commit suicide? It would be interesting to hear your assumptions, or maybe hypothesis. Do such self-destructive mechanisms in humans exist at all? It's the opposite, actually. Humans have a survival instinct. Every human, every personality wants to live. There was a patient who had fears, as if someone or something was choking her. She felt constant pressure in the neck and chest area behind the breastbone. She was a single mother with four small children. This woman went to a mental clinic to get treatment, but later committed suicide. Her doctor called me to tell the terrible news. Even the doctors in the clinic could not foresee this. However, when she was alive, she always used to say in conversation with me and her doctor, yes, 
These suicidal thoughts come to me, but I will never do this. I really want to live. In fact, she was scared of death and was clinging to life. She was afraid of her being ill and wanted to recover. But nevertheless, after two weeks of treatment at the clinic, the woman committed suicide. We can only assume she was influenced by some alien force, which she could not resist, meaning there was a command in her head that made her forget about her children as well as her will to live and recover. She just did it. Moreover, she did it in a way which is not typical for women. She hung herself. Yes, take into account that she was staying at the specialized clinic, under the supervision of the specialists, and yet nobody could prevent the incident. Being a daycare patient, she got her therapy by 4 p.m., went home and did it there. Despite the fact that there was very professional staff at the clinic, over those two weeks nobody noticed that she was going to harm herself. Then I would like to provide an example, which is now well known, as it was in the papers throughout CIS countries. I'm talking about the suicide of Gart's daughter. She committed suicide at the age of 29, just on the day when her father Valentin Gart had his birthday. Olga Gart left her suicide note, which I'm going to read now. And then we will discuss what we are going to hear. Well, that's it. I decided nothing will return me back to the path of truth. I can no longer stand living in hell. I could not stand it anymore. You know, the most painful thing is that I will not see you again. You my charm, my adoration, my happiness. But this is a spoon of tar, a healthy pulled-out tooth, which could have been treated and could have served for a lifetime. It does not allow me, word is not clear, to live with you and love you. Now I am sitting in your kitchen and tears are running down my face. I will never have these cups again, these chairs. I will never enter this apartment again. I will never iron your short. But God wants it. I'm happy. I love, love, love. And the impossibility to thank God for each second lived with you has led me to this act. That's all. The end of me has come. These are bad words. You know, I could have done something in my life, but there's nothing to say about what hasn't been done and will not be anymore. I wish you to live well. Remember me sometimes. I cannot have it anymore. I do not want to say goodbye to you. I'm dying from having this one thought. I will torment everyone around me if I stay alive. No one will understand how I'm suffering. Sorry, forgive me for everything. But I am no longer a liver. I am a squab. The soul has died. And how to live without it? Only barking and gnashing of teeth left. This is from the Bible. If a person moves away from God, he dies in devil's paws. I have been suffering for six and a half years already. You are like a sunshine that lit my life, illuminating everything. I am torturing you and fear that you will leave me. You are happiness. You are truth. Know that. May everything be fine with you. Everything will be fine. You will live a long life and you will be just as fluffy and charming. My God, I will never see it. Goodbye, my treasure. Now I am going to finish ironing your grey shirt. I will wait for Alexei's arrival. 
go to my place and do it there. Probably I'll jump out of the window. I have lived for 29 years, 20 of them happily, and the last six and a half years in hell. I wish you had met me at that time. I can't write anymore. It makes me very shaky. I'm still hoping for something. Had I not done it that time, that's all, I'm finishing up. I feel very bad, cold and scary. I want to break free, I want to leave, but someone has clung to my left shoulder and does not give me a rest. I can't believe how much happiness I missed, and therefore will miss the rest. Knowing there is happiness and not receiving it, it is hell and torment, and nothing can be done. I will eat some ice cream for last, but this is a spoon of happiness. A person can do without food, without water, but not without God. God is love. Every breath must glorify Him. Maybe now you will understand. I entered the bathroom. Your pens were hanging there. I was kissing them. I love everything about you. Love is in me, but the devil won't let it wake up. I wish this situation had never happened. I mean, this act. And everything else remained. I have nothing more to say. Goodbye, kissing you. Do not be sad. You will not. Have fun. Well, apparently this is my destiny. Who knows how one is to die? Do stay with the apartment, money, everything, but without me. Give him my letter. It is in the journal Health. This note was found after Olga had hung herself. And I immediately want to tell you that this was not her first attempt of suicide. Here it is said that she had been tormenting for six and a half years, that something clung to her left side. She felt this strong influence, which squeezed her and did not let her feeling of love reveal itself. And finally, during the second attempt of suicide, she passed away. So we have already said many times at today's meeting that there is some influence of the third forces. As of today, academic specialists cannot answer how it is happening, can they? I think that at our discussion we can answer this question. At least I would like to hear the answer to it. Of course, it's obvious here that the person doesn't choose this, because there is a struggle in her. She wants to live, she wants to love, she knows what is it, she has this experience. And impossibility to overcome this is affecting her and forcing to end dramatically. The compulsion of this act is clearly observed here, which the person herself is perceiving very hard. Is this a psychiatric illness, or what kind of a disease is it? Please tell us, based on your practice. Even from practice, those patients who come with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, here is a vivid description of it. A 16-year-old girl admitted to a hospital with a suicide attempt. Her mom stopped her in time. She very well described these clear moments, when she was able to realize that she was standing on the edge of a nine-story building, feeling horrified of the thought of what she was going to do. She says, you have no idea what an incredible power it is, it is impossible not to obey. That is, I understand that tragedy will happen now. She was crying, she was happy that her mother, her parents, not finding her in the room, rushed out and were able to save her. 
This was not her first attempt. The person who is diagnosed with being mentally ill during remission is describing the state very well. She says, I am absolutely aware that I don't want to do this, but this incredible power makes me do it. I can also give you an example. Again, science can't explain this. If previously we have been talking about a mentally ill person, then my example is about an absolutely healthy person. In the evening a girl goes to bed in a good mood, in good spirit, wishing good night to everyone. And then she wakes up because she's cold. She wants to take a blanket and cover herself, and when she wakes up, she realizes that she's sitting on the window ledge with her feet hanging off. How can it be explained? A second example. A boy goes to a boarding school. He's dreaming that he's running. He's been chased. He's afraid. And he's been told, run over there, there is a door. You'll open it and you'll be saved. He runs to the door, sees light behind the door, opens the door goes in and wakes up on the ground. He's also an absolutely healthy kid, and so he says, I was just forced to get there, towards that door, towards that light. That is, he was running away. When he opened the door in his dream, he actually fell out of the window in reality. It was a high floor. He survived, which can also be called a miracle. And all our colleagues said that the angel saved him. He got off with just several fractures. The situation also took place. No one could explain why this happened. Here in this note was a very interesting phrase that something was being squeezed and cut off the flow of love, meaning the ability to love. Igor Mikhailovich Danilov said the same thing in the program The Invisible World, when there is an influence and an impact of third forces. There is a feeling of being squeezed, a sensation of being squeezed, and the person seems to be cut off from the source. In fact, the state, the ability of being in a state of happiness, love, joy, and at least some kind of common optimism. And here is an example from my practicum. One young woman, we had a case, two teenagers, 16 and 18 years old, recently jumped off a high building, so they committed a joint suicide. A young woman watched the news report and photos from the scene. At that time she was in a state of a conflict with her husband and was feeling resentment towards him for some time. So she was very emotional, and that's all. It was an ordinary, normal, calm evening, and everything was fine. She didn't have any acute or stressful situations before that. So, looking at those photos and that report, her state was dramatically changing. It all started with feeling a lump in her chest, a feeling of pressure. Then anxiety started to grow, turning into a panic attack. She could not even describe this state, because we don't even have such emotions in us, such an unbearable state that was. It was kind of a mix of all the worst feelings that could ever be, and she got the feeling that she was losing her reasoning. 
losing her mind. And so she described that force which fell upon her so quickly, like an avalanche, as if to simply washed away any ability to resist it, or to control herself at least somehow and change her state of being, meaning this power washed away her ability to control herself. And then she experienced these interesting changes of her state. She says, I look at my child, I have to feed him, but I can't, as if my love for the child got shut off. I simply can't take care about my child. So I went to the garden to help my mother-in-law. It was like banal empathy was shut off. Sympathy for my mother-in-law, that is, it was mere coldness and complete detachment. And it was so hard, precisely, that I had no love for anyone, like it was shut off. And then the thought came to her that probably that boy and girl who jumped off, they were also in the same state. And if they had the same plump, that compression, that shut-off, as she called it, then it was impossible to live like this. This state is incompatible with life, that's why they committed suicide. And she is also likely to commit suicide, because it is impossible to live with it if it doesn't go away. So naturally she rushed to the specialist. The instinct of self-preservation worked and asked her mother to come with her. She felt that there was a threat for the child. She was clearly aware that someone should be with her, so she immediately called, asked her mother to come over and stay with her. She was prescribed antidepressants, diagnosed with a protracted depression. A depression does not develop in three days. It's not true. Antidepressants stimulate suicidal behavior, meaning these thoughts, this anxiety, insomnia, and so on, what she has already had. Her depressive state intensified, increased, and deteriorated. And this was clear to me only because it was described in the programs Suicide, the After-Death Fate, The Invisible World, including the feeling of this compression and shutting off. If it wasn't stated in the Alatra book and described in details in the Azaosmos book, I, as an expert, would not be able to understand what was happening to the person, because that was definitely not a depression. She did not have any predispositions for it, no symptoms. She just had worsening of her condition because of the medications she took. And in the end, I wouldn't have been able to help her with anything. But thanks to the fact that this knowledge had already existed, I was able to explain the person what was happening. She began to work on herself very thoroughly. First of all, with self-observation, separation from those thoughts and their disregard. And so, it turned out that she could do it, it was just her belief that she was not able to ignore them. She's a Christian Orthodox and began to spend a lot of time in prayers. Thanks to these actions and her attitude changed to what was happening to her, she felt confident that she could ignore all this and not give in to it. She changed her attitude towards her husband. I told her that she had accumulated resentment, and it gave way to a flow of gratitude. 
everything started this. It was a breakthrough. Within a few days, the person literally was able to cope with this state, and she got back to her normal state. In the absence of this knowledge, I simply wouldn't have known what to do and how to evaluate what was happening. I had a clear understanding that the person was in danger, that she could really act upon those thoughts, and that she was in an unbearable state. But I wouldn't have known how to help her and what was actually happening to her. This understanding would not have existed at all. Based on what was previously mentioned, we can now not just assume, but also conclude that there is some kind of pattern. This pattern can be seen among the people of different ages, social statuses and professions. We can also see this pattern having a different geography, as we have specialists here from various countries. As it's not an isolated case, and we face it quite often, what actions do you undertake as the experts in this area? I've personally experienced the same influence as Tatiana described in her patient's case. I tried both the traditional methods and the methods described in the programs with the participation of Igor Mikhailovich Danilov. I have learned that the hard way, so to speak, and I felt the same kind of influence. I could not control myself at all. There were signs of social de-adaptation, as we say. I could not drive. I acted like a robot in my family life, at my job and in everything else. And that pressure was so strong that I felt so desperate. I was trying to pull myself out of this state. I turned to the doctors and got the same diagnosis — depression. Being a specialist, I didn't understand what was going on with me considering all the known approaches, meaning there were no reasons which could have caused my depression. There were no symptoms of it, but still I was diagnosed with depression. I did understand that antidepressants would not help me to pull myself out of that state. I also had insomnia and was on the verge of desperation, so I was in the same situation as described above. But only the Elatra book and the programs with Igor Mikhailovich Danilov, turning to the traditional medicine, I understood would not be able to pull me out of that state, as it was still lasting and somehow aggravating. But I did not take antidepressants. I started with sleeping pills and understood they were having an opposite effect on me. But only when I read and practiced what was written in Elatra, when I watched the programs with Igor Mikhailovich Danilov, I got the inner feeling that I could cope with that. This inner power was so big that it helped me get out of that depressed state without the use of pills or antidepressants. Only that. Actually, many patients with different kinds of mental disorder — fears, anxiety, depression — have that feeling of pressure in their chest or emptiness inside, as they also call it. 
but they don't tell you about it unless you ask them. In Russian we say there is a weight on someone's heart. This symptom was discussed in the program The Invisible World by Igor Mikhailovich Danilov. But until then, its nature has been unclear. Is this some sort of vegetative disorder? What's going on with a person? What is actually meant by a weight on someone's heart in Russian? As a matter of fact, I also face this in my practice. The patients who have made suicidal attempts are directed to me. I run psychological diagnostics, which means I investigate the quality of the mental processes, including the emotional state. But the thing is, no abnormalities have been detected neither among teenagers nor adults. So it seems as they are absolutely healthy. Patients were telling me that they were in a great mood, they weren't any distress or desire to die, any apathy or anything like that. There weren't anything like that. They just did it, but they could not explain how they were able to decide and they act like that. They said, I can't understand how I did that, what I did that for. Life is great, I love life, I want to live. But still, I heard this thought, go and do it, and I could not do anything about it, I could not resist it. That just shows how strong it is, how obsessive this thought is that a person is hardly able to resist. It's easier to do it, to commit that irreversible act, than to resist those obsessive thoughts and that influence and save your life. What happened to me is what I want to tell. Immediately, something came down on me out of nowhere. It was very, very unpleasant. It is very hard for me to talk about and describe it, because it felt like it was something very dark, heavy, sad and evil out of nowhere. My reactions had physical symptoms as well. My face started to become stiff. My eyes seemed to have sunk in. My hands and feet were heavy, like tin metal. I could not cope with this. I was as if paralyzed. I just laid down and was laying. It was pressuring me mercilessly. Extreme, unbearable pressure from outside, in the middle of my body, in the middle of my chest. It was such a strong pressure that it's even hard to describe it. It's as if you were being pressed, twisted and squeezed, squeezed tightly, as if in a vice. It's unbearable pain, mental, physical, I don't know. During these moments, thoughts were coming to me, which I associated with me, believing they were my thoughts. They were coming from my right side, slightly above. Even now I can't describe them. These were unequivocal orders, orders like kill yourself, this will help you, you'll stop feeling this pressure, do it, jump out of the window, it will pass. I also remember the time when it slipped into my thoughts and I received orders like, go get drunk, go to the bar and get drunk, it will help you, it shouted, I want to get drunk, 
I identified myself with this and believed that I or something else in me wanted to get killed, something in me wanted to get drunk. I didn't understand what was going on. I'd like to share my experience after watching the program The Invisible World. I had the following situation in my life. Once my husband and I bought a house in the village, and I began to notice that at some point through peripheral vision, not when you look straight but on the side, I could see shadows running out of the shed, there's a brick construction, towards the house. They were either gray or black, these shadows. I didn't know what it was, and I thought these were spirits of people. Not that I was afraid, but it was unpleasant, because there was misunderstanding why they were running around. For example, I'm washing the dishes or thinking about something while being in a good mood. Then out of the corner of your eye, you see that something dark is standing and watching. I feel with my entire being that it is looking at me now, and I do not understand why all this is going on. After all, the owners have already left, but these shadows are still showing up from time to time in the house in Minsk. I mean, not only in the village, but also staying in the apartment sometimes. I can feel that someone is watching from the front of the back. Also, there was a situation when I was sitting and thinking about something, and I felt like there was a hit in the back of the head. I felt like someone kicked me with a foot between the shoulders, and there was no understanding what was going on. Since my childhood, I have noticed that there are some creatures that I can see, but I can really feel them. I did not understand how, but I definitely knew that there was something there. It was happening at night. Suddenly, my consciousness woke up, the body woke up, and I began to feel as if energy was being pulled out of my body. There was a real feeling that something was pulling it out. I noticed that my body at this moment was like in a stupor, it was frightened, some kind of heat passed through it, like goosebumps or something like that. But it seemed like it was being held down and it was laying there like a rock. At the same time I could feel that there was something to the right of my bed and the wall was to the left of the bed and it was a very unpleasant feeling. From my early childhood, probably when I was 9-10 years old, I would wake up at night and see that there were shadows in front of my bed. Sometimes one, sometimes two or three. Of course, I would be in great panic and fear. As I was growing up, they became more aggressive. I would wake up at night, well, not really wake up. The body was asleep. I felt like being paralyzed, and I saw everything but could not do anything. I wanted to scream and move. I saw them standing and doing something with me. It was in a panic, fear, and some kind of animal agony. Sometimes I felt like my body was raised above the bed. I felt so helpless and I could not share it with anybody or tell anyone, even though I tried, but no one believed me. 
Most likely, these stories just scared others, but I constantly lived in such fear. It was some time in my younger years that these dark ones started to show up. And sometimes I would see them. Sometimes I would only sense them. Sometimes I would sense them and see them in my mind, but if I turned around to look, I couldn't see them. But if I looked away, I could see them again. I could see exactly what they looked like. And I, you know, I could see in my environment, like my pets, they were like scared of these things. And I didn't like it either, but they would come. And so that, it went on for a long time. Even moving didn't stop it, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, nothing stopped it. And as I got older, they got more like more aggressive, more mm -hmm. personal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, we don't really understand all of it. Having, having one of those beings close is fearful. We have raised this question more than once, that which hides in the shadows. And well, all this sounded also as a metaphor for many. But after all, there are indeed many who live in the shadows, just have to be able to see it. Sometimes even the most ardent atheists, they are afraid of the dark. Not for the reason that they are afraid of dentists. And in the dark, there can be many of them, of these dentists. That's why they are afraid of the dark but for the reason that people feel that we don't see everything of what surrounds us. And often, much carries a threat, but not a direct threat of some kind of physical, say, impact or life hazard. As a rule, all of these concealed creatures consume something that we ourselves do not notice, that which we throw away as worthless. Nowadays, there is an interesting and extremely important tendency going on. I know a lot of examples, and so do my colleagues. When we talk about an unusual behavior of others, and right away we start looking for a mental disorder. Now we have so many similar cases, and it's really scary, when even small kids here is one of the latest examples. A mother was getting ready to go for a walk with her child, but she got distracted, it was a summertime. And three-year-old kid was sitting and playing in his room, where all the windows were closed, so everything was good. The mother was in the kitchen with the only open window, with a screen on it. The kid, it was dramatically fast, there was a chair next to that very window. The mother said, while I turned my back to fill a bottle, the child rushed toward the window, climbed up the chair, leaned on the window screen and fell out of the window from the sixth floor. The kid survived, but was put into intensive care. No one expected him to survive. However, the child was saved. His state was certainly severe, and such examples, similar cases, can be observed quite often.
and they are sort of happening one after another. For instance, in a certain neighborhood of a town. This is observed not only in our town, Dnipro. I talked to my colleagues in Krivirik, and they observed the same cases, literally happening one after another. Here we can no longer explain that the kid, the three- or five-year-old kid, has a mental disorder that made him act this way. And nothing else, beside the influence of a certain force, can be assumed in such cases, because the kid was acting upon the influence of some sort of a force, which is not officially identified in science. What about assuming it hypothetically? Exactly. Now we can only explain it hypothetically. Those answers that I found in the books, already mentioned today, the Alatra book, and the programs, and those explanations that Igor Mikhailovich Danilov has given us, clarify the existence of third-party forces, whose influence on us is destructive. With kids, in particular, it happens this way. The mother often opens up to negativity, and it influences the child through her. If we go back to the case of the young lady, she straight up said that she was being influenced. She could feel that she was certainly affected by some force, and those teenagers were probably influenced by the same kind of force as well. When I asked her whether she told the psychiatrist about that, she replied, certainly not. Otherwise, in addition to my depression, I would have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. That is to say, she consciously concealed the fact that she felt this influence. And there is one more interesting case about children and their mothers. It happened three years ago. A five-and-a-half-year-old girl fell out of the fifth-floor window. The kid was home alone when the incident happened. Her mother was in a challenging stage of her life. She divorced her husband, who was the biological father of her child. Her own father was suffering from a severe disease and undergoing treatment. There was actually no one to babysit the kid, as the mother had to work in order to make a living. The lady sometimes had evening shifts and was coming home late, which is why the girl was alone. For instance, she would return home at 9 or 10 p.m., so the kid would be home alone for some time, and no one could support her in this situation. The mother was in the extremely depressive state, suffering from resentment, envy and jealousy towards her ex-husband. Because he left her for another woman. Her way of thinking was negative, so her thoughts were mostly aggressive. One evening the girl was playing, she was home alone, and suddenly she felt a strong fear. It was horrifying, creeping up slowly. It sort of filled in the apartment, room by room, and eventually reached the room where she was playing. The girl herself said this. She was saying that something was coming from the outside, gradually filling the apartment. It reached the room where she was sitting. The girl was scared to the point where she had to run to the balcony and call her mother. Mommy, save me, help me, she cried. This cry was heard by a neighbor who returned from shift work. He went out on the balcony, saw this girl screaming and started calling her name. 
But as he said, she didn't react to his words even a bit. He even threw a ball at her because she kept calling her mother and started climbing over the balcony railing. He threw at her a tennis ball, a kind of small ball. Only when the ball hit the girl, she looked at the neighbor, that is, she got sight of him. He persuaded her to return home. The parents of this woman had lived in this apartment before, and that is why he knew the landline number. Other than that, there was no key, no mobile phone, so the neighbor could not contact the child or take her to his place. Therefore, he was calling her every 15 minutes and talking to her so that she wouldn't be afraid. He said, I realized that the girl was in an inadequate condition. I talked to him after this incident, too. For the second time, she, the neighbor, got distracted by some program, something on TV or a phone call. I can't remember. That is why he didn't call her. He called her later when he sensed something was wrong. But she did not answer the call. He ran out to the balcony to see the girl almost having climbed over the railing. While saying, Mommy, I'm coming to you, she was moving intentionally towards something. There were some wires hanging there, the girl was holding onto them with one hand. But she was halfway out the balcony, the man said. I've realized that I would not be there on time. So he ran downstairs, there were two guys passing by. A girl's about to fall out, catch her. Eventually, they caught the girl. She fell down. She had a broken arm and a concussion of the brain, and her neighbor, of course, got some serious injuries. But the fact is that the girl doesn't remember the moment of the fall or how she jumped off the balcony. In her reality, she showed on the street from which height she allegedly jumped. She went to her mother and saw her the distance of one and a half floors in height. She saw the ground, the leaves, and tiny cracks, as if she was looking from the ground floor a little higher. That is, her perception was altered. And she did not respond when she was called by her name. When my colleague, who is a child psychiatrist, sent this call to me, all kinds of projective tests or examination of the child showed no abnormal changes. I mean, the child was in a normal condition. The doctors attributed the fact that she didn't remember anything to post-traumatic amnesia, that is, a memory loss due to craniocerebral trauma. But it wasn't like she just had a memory loss. She remembered, but something different. And this is a very important point which shows that the child is mentally healthy. But her perception was altered. She saw a different picture. How is this possible? What's happening? And we can make one conclusion. Someone influenced the child's perception at that moment. By the way, this is a very interesting point, because if we talk about the issue of changing the picture or perception of the world or reality, there are a lot of facts as of today showing that people 
who survived some unfortunate circumstances, were seeing a completely different set of events. Let's watch a video where eyewitnesses of such events tell about what they perceived. When I was four years old, I got sick, but there was no fever or high temperature. My mother went to our neighbor to call a doctor, and I was left at home alone. This was done more than once before, so everything was pretty usual and adequate. But the interesting thing is that the child, that is me, decided she wanted to see her mommy right now, right this moment. So I tried to open the front door, but it didn't work out for me. I tried to open the kitchen window, but it also didn't work out. In the room where was my father's desk, there was a small window open. I built the stairs using the books and just fell onto the balcony. I had this strong desire to get out of the house. I remember very clearly the moment when I was standing on the balcony, railing, holding on, ready to jump. At this moment, the neighbor from the nearby balcony saw me. This woman just begged me with tears, little baby, don't jump, Alona, dear, don't jump. Your mommy will come now. Don't jump. Hold on, dear daughter. But at that moment, I saw a middle-aged woman downstairs. And she called me and said, Jump, I'll catch you. And bring you to your mommy. And she was saying it so calmly, so firmly, that the plea and cries of the neighbor asking me not to jump did not help. I just jumped. Thank God I was saved. Because I can't call it any other way. But what was more intriguing is the question, was there that woman downstairs? There were discussions and conversations about it after the event. And the neighbor who asked me not to jump said that there was no one there. So there was actually no one downstairs, but I saw her, she called me. But it's impossible to forget it. I remember when I was about six years old, I lived with my grandmother in Kazakhstan during the summer. There were apple trees growing on the ground floor while we lived on the sixth. Only my grandmother was at home. I think she was doing something in the kitchen, and I'm not sure if I was asleep or not. It may have been some kind of a vision, but it was very clear. It was absolutely clear vision and perception that I could go down from the sixth floor to the first one and pick an apple from the apple tree. I even saw like I was getting down from the balcony as if I'm a feather flying towards the first floor. So pleasant it was to experience. I don't know. It wasn't even adrenaline, it was some kind of fairy tale. In addition to this visual, there were still clear sensations and emotions somewhere in subconsciousness. There was something physical in it. I mean, not just a picture of something falling or floating, 
but it was me in particular. I was the one having this feeling. Perhaps I was in less self-aware age, too. I don't remember exactly. Maybe five or six years old. After having this vision, I went to the balcony and I looked down. On one hand, it seemed quite high, scary and dangerous, because it was on the sixth floor. But on the other hand, the vision and the pleasant sensation was stronger. So I decided to do so. I mean, I began climbing over the balcony in order to jump. And my grandmother saved me. I got lucky because she noticed what was happening in time. A very interesting picture appeared in my head while driving. We were returning home from a village. This is the road from Pereyoslav Milnitsky to Borispol. It was evening and a little dark already. So my headlights were turned on. And suddenly, in my mind, I clearly saw how my lane was converging with the oncoming one. It's like they were merging together. It seemed as if the right lane went under the left one with an offset. It's like it was entering the left one. And I could clearly see how it went under this lane, like parallel straight lines that should not intersect, but they did. And this understanding that they were converging was so clear that I instantly pulled over and stopped. This has never happened in my practice as a driver. Never at all. My wife asked, what happened? And I said, the lanes are merging. She looked at me in surprise and said, what do you mean the lanes are merging? I said, I don't know. Well, the lanes are really merging. We were standing there for about three, four minutes. Several cars passed by us. Well, everything was fine. So we kept on driving. But the most interesting thing was later. We didn't drive even a kilometer. But there was an accident ahead, a head-on collision. The car from our line, as it seemed to me then, drove on to the oncoming traffic. And the head-on collision happened exactly as I saw it in my mind. Most often there are present-day situations, when a person lives a wonderful life, there are no signs of anything, nothing bad, and then he simply commits suicide. And those who are saved, they ask, why did you do it? He can't explain. We have a psychotherapist here, and we say it again, she can confirm it, because she has obviously encountered this in her work, and more than once. The picture of reality changes for a person. He has a burning desire to do something, but at times he is unaware of anything at all. And they are well aware that they are doing something good. But behind this good, there are standing exactly those or more precisely, the ones whom we call Kanduks, for those who have read the book as Osmos. None of this is a fairy tale, it's all life, it's all reality. Well, again, why does one need to know this? Well, at least if a burning thought comes, and all your attention narrows down to a point, and it seems that life is meaningless, then such thoughts wouldn't come from the good. Such thoughts come only, let's say, from those who hide in the shadows, or from those who control these shadows. 
There can be no morality, no feelings or anything else. It is just that those whom we don't see want to eat. It is only due to their hunger. In the program Suicide After Death Fate with Igor Mikhailovich Danilov, an accident involving a man was described who was taking the same highway almost every single day. He knew the road very well. One time he got into a car accident and experienced clinical death. He later found out that there had been a high number of accidents on that very spot during the last couple of months. When he was describing the accident, he said that he saw a wooded area and thought that he was driving on the dirt road towards the wooded area, not the ravine. Here we can see a clear alteration of reality in the consciousness of this man. When I watched this program, I remembered a case that happened in March 2015 in Germany. It was a tragic plane crash with 150 passengers, including the crew members who died in the crash. The plane was operated by a totally healthy pilot of German Wings airline. The plane was on its way from Barcelona to Düsseldorf. It gained steady altitude. The first 30 minutes of the flight were good. Then, while the captain got out of the cockpit for some reason, the co-pilot barricaded himself inside, meaning he locked the cockpit door and let the plane crash. It hit a mountain and crashed in the Alps. Here we can guess, he maybe lost his consciousness or felt sick. However, when he, the second pilot, was knocked on the cockpit door, he still responded something, meaning he was conscious. The aircraft's flight data recorder showed evidence that the plane was not just falling, it was like the engine had been shut down. Uncontrollable. In other words, the plane was intentionally controlled to fall. So, it was controllable. Moreover, Coming closer to the ground, the mountains, he accelerated the speed in order to make it happen faster. During the investigation process, the Commission, all his family members and friends were shocked because, according to their words, he had never suffered from any psychological illnesses. And he had a girlfriend. Prior to this accident, he bought a car for his girlfriend and a car for himself. He was definitely not planning to die or commit suicide. Surely, the question is, what happened to this pilot? What force influenced this person to make him commit suicide and kill another 149 people along the way? There were many kids and teenagers among them. There was a whole class from Germany. And of course, later on, it was explained to the people that he allegedly suffered from depression. Even Wikipedia has a record about this case, where it is stated that he has been suffering from psychosis, but it can't possibly be true. I know it. I have patients among bus drivers who take antidepressants for depression, and they go through a strict medical examination, which is held even for land transportation. So, if a pilot was ever diagnosed with depression, 
or took antidepressants, he would not be allowed to fly, especially having a psychosis. No one would allow this person fly because the rules are very strict about this. However, people got this official explanation later, because there was simply no other reasonable clarification how a person could have done this. There are many similar unexplained cases. Just recently, a few weeks ago, a similar tragedy happened in Russia. A bus full of people was on the way early in the morning, at 5 a.m. And suddenly, out of the blue, a truck drove into oncoming traffic. It was a down-track Kamaz. 14 passengers died in this bus due to the accident. The driver of the truck survived. When he was interviewed in the courtroom as to why this happened, initially he said, I don't know, I'm not guilty. The only explanation he had was, I was cut off by a car. At 5 a.m.? Well, it sounds quite dubious. In fact, similar cases have been in our life a lot. On November 14, 2018, there was a little traffic jam during rush hour at one of the intersections of Yekaterinburg. A driver of Honda CRV was moving towards the traffic light in the right lane. After waiting in traffic for a few minutes, for some unexplainable reason, he suddenly drove onto the sidewalk and rushed forward at a high speed. The vehicle drove for more than 100 meters, crushing everything on its way, including pedestrians who didn't get a chance to move away. It stopped after crashing into a pole. As a result of the road accident, a man who was walking on the sidewalk and a woman with two-year-old child who were waiting at the the traffic light were severely injured. The driver was unable to explain his act. On May 24, 2015, on the Permikaterinburg highway, a Toyota SUV crossed into oncoming lane in order to pass the vehicles in his lane. The driver passed two vehicles and continued driving in oncoming traffic even after seeing headlights of a bus truck which was heading towards his car. Quickly approaching the oncoming car, for some unexplainable reason, the driver of the SUV did not even try to avoid the head-on collision. He also ignored his wife screaming who warned him about the impending danger. As a result of the deadly road accident, four people died and four more people got multiple injuries, including two children, five and six years old, who were in the Toyota. On June 28, 2015, on the Kursk-Voronish highway, a driver of Skoda Octavia overtook an Ish vehicle and returned back to his lane. However, when a few seconds later a dump truck appeared in the oncoming lane, he suddenly swerved into oncoming traffic and caused a head-on collision with the truck. The accident involving three vehicles resulted in the death of three people and left the truck driver with serious injuries. A two-year-old child, who was a passenger in Skoda, miraculously survived but was left with serious injuries. On October 5, 2018, an accident occurred on the Tverjev highway, after which, at the scene of the road accident, 13 people died and three received multiple severe injuries. This is what happened. A shuttle minibus for transit was driving in the direction of Tver, and Lias bus was driving towards it. Approaching the Lias bus, the driver of the Ford, for some inexplicable reason, suddenly made a radical maneuver, crossed into oncoming traffic and caused a head-on collision with the bus. The investigation showed that the Ford minibus had no brake path, while the bus driver of Leaz applied the brakes trying to avoid the collision.
On October 12, 2010, the most horrific vehicle accident in the history of Ukraine happened at the railway crossing near the Marganist town of Dnipropetrovsk region. At about 9 a.m., an Etalon bus approached an unguarded railway crossing and stopped. The alarm was going off and the railway stoplight was flashing red. Letting the train pass but not waiting for permission to continue driving, the bus driver started to drive. According to the witnesses, the passengers were shouting that the railway stoplight was still on and the bus was not allowed to go. Moreover, everyone could clearly see the diesel locomotive approaching the railway crossing crossing at high speed, but the driver ignored the warning and drove on to the rail crossing. He stopped at the railway track and turned off the engine of the car. People were trapped. An inevitable collision occurred and train dragged the bus for 300 meters. 44 people were killed, including three children, but until now no one can explain the driver's actions. On February 4, 2014, in the Sumy region, a similar tragedy occurred at a railway crossing. A shuttle bus with passengers moving along the route for bus Sumy drove up to the crossing and stopped at the prohibitory signal of the railway stoplight. But as Kharkov Sumy passenger train approached the rail crossing, the driver, for unknown reasons, moved off, drove on to the rail crossing, stopped and turned the bus engines off. There was an inevitable collision which killed 13 people and 5 people were left seriously injured. The driver himself survived without a scratch. He could not explain his action. The investigation discovered that on January 1st of the same year a tragedy occurred in the driver's family. His father committed suicide by hanging himself, but assuming the driver attempted suicide is impossible, because a few weeks before the tragedy he had a baby, so he had someone to live for. Yes, we are now talking about serious events resulting in death. But no one can deny that each person faces similar situations on a daily basis. I mean, these obsessive thoughts, when they come, people literally hear some sort of orders in their head. Say this or do that, say something specific. Moreover, it is a particular phase that keeps playing in your head and becomes obsessive and pressing. Say, 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 specifically these words, you have to say to specifically this person, or it orders to commit an action. And the person understands that this action is not just irrational, but also destructive. Yes, it might not lead to death, but the person clearly understands that he is acting against his morals. He understands that his comments may negatively influence the other people, but still does this. But when you are talking frankly with these people, asking, why did you do that? They say, well, what did you feel once you did that? Just after I did that, he says, I felt relief. This pressure disappeared. So you think you did the right thing? No, of course not. I understand I did the wrong thing, but at least it's not pressing down on me anymore. Isn't it the same? Sometimes thoughts start racing in your head, some odd resentments, something happened at one time, and you cannot stop them, and you're already sick and tired of this. That is, it seems like the situation has been analyzed already, conclusions have been made, but nonetheless, when thinking back to this person who said something wrong or used the wrong wording, wrong intonation, doesn't matter. But do you still have resentment towards that person when remember about it all of a sudden? 
And this flow of thoughts for some time, literally you could be flying in this movie for half an hour, trying to prove something to the person, to justify yourself, to condemn this person, to convince them in something. To convince them, well, a full-on discussion, full-on arguments, then an hour later I come to my senses like, what am I doing? But in fact, I sat down, for example, to read a book on the sofa and get carried away in this process. And what is your state after that? First of all, the state of being exhausted, and at the same time you get the self-tormenting thoughts. How could I make the same mistake? I've already understood everything, you know, already figured it out. I'm an expert. I'm a psychiatrist, after all. You know, I understand everything that you can't do that. You've got to be thankful. But when it got in unnoticeably, it whipped you away. One association followed by another association. It's important to be aware of every thought, of course. What is so interesting in this example that you gave? Look. It appears as a clear intervention from outside, right? That is, out of the blue, you get into a certain state. If a person tries to analyze what he is experiencing at that moment, then he can actually notice and discover many interesting things for himself. After all, the event is happening right now, but the consciousness diverges the person's attention to an event which happened 20 or 30 years ago, to something that someone said or did once. Who cares? How long ago was this? It is now that you are feeling bad. But human consciousness, it distracts you. It doesn't allow the person to analyze what is happening right now. There is, in this way, a certain symbiosis happens between the consciousness and those thought forces which influence the person. But this raises a question. Look, Tatiana, you said that thoughts show up and these thoughts give rise to emotions. Then we raise a question. Didn't the thoughts show up exactly for that reason? Of course, exactly for that. For that. And there's this exhausting state, then I clearly feel a loss of energy. It's like while I was peeling potatoes, I watched this movie with all those past resentments and memories of them and ended up with a feeling as if I've just unloaded a train. And I don't want anything anymore. I feel apathy, sort of being tired, broken. And on top of that, self-judgment occurs. I literally feel devastated. Moreover, it always knows how to touch your own nerve, meaning it knows everything about you. It knows where it hurts. For instance, in my case, but I'm still working with this, there was and still is a fear about my child. So it offers me a thought. The child did not come home from school in time. Time went by and he should have returned, but he has been absent for 20 minutes already. So it offers me pictures like a maniac, that he was kidnapped and what they were doing to him. These kinds of truly terrible fears. But I'm not a masochist. Why would I need all of this? So, it turns out that by accepting and nourishing these images and thoughts with the power of my own attention, I kind of wish death to my child. So, if I accept this, it means I find some pleasure in it. But where is maternal instinct and motherly love in this case, then? 
Situations when a mother takes her child and jumps off the tenth floor or throws herself with a kid under a train occur quite often. In my opinion, it's possible that in these situations a similar mechanism comes to work, like in situations when people commit suicide with their children, which means that they don't separate it from themselves, that there is something alien came to them, that exactly these thoughts are not theirs. It means I should not nourish them, I must reject them and stop providing them with my energy, and this way they go away. They are trying to get your attention, but then they go away. But if a person does not know about that and associates these thoughts and negative pictures with himself, at some point he may do something irreparable indeed. Yes, and you know that in fact all of these manifestations that you've mentioned, talking about your child after all, these thoughts come to every mother, right? But for some reason it is considered that the mother is taking care of her child. I'm sure you can tell us the same about your mother. And as mothers you are experiencing similar situation, aren't you? I remember from my childhood my mom saying, where were you? I was worried about you. But for some reason, no one has a thought, everything is okay with my child. It appears as manifestation of love, but in reality, it's destructive. Disruptive. Yes, of course, it is destroying. It is destructive. But if I don't succumb to these destructive, devastating thoughts when my consciousness offers me to feel anxious, if I reject such thoughts at that very moment, I protect my child this way, that is my inside, meaning if I don't accept them. I'll say more, such thoughts come not only to mothers, but they come to fathers as well. As a rule, the nature of these thoughts is always the same. Something will happen to the child, or you didn't have time, or you failed to do something. And right after this you are offered to feel guilt. Well, pretty much, pretty much all the time. And there is always a fear that you didn't do everything possible to ensure that your child is safe and sound. It is quite a common trick of consciousness. I've got a question here. Whom is this care about? Well, whom? About beloved self, about consciousness. About consciousness and its product selfishness. There is also a popular image of super-father or super-parent. Here we have also a lack of confidence in the child, that he or she is able to handle and figure out things on his or her own. It relates to the point Tatiana has mentioned, that 80-90% of thoughts in our consciousness are negative, aggressive and destructive. I'd like to add something as well regarding obsessive thoughts. Here is an observation from my practice. No one turned to me complaining about obsessive positive thoughts, so they're always destructive. And I didn't have anyone with positive thoughts. What is also interesting is, as we mentioned, distortion of reality by consciousness. Let me give you a specific example. A boy is preparing for exams, he's doing good in school, and everyone around him believes he's knowledgeable. But he comes with a problem. I just can't manage it. I won't pass the exam. I can't get anything done. So I've started giving him arguments that he's doing well here and there. But these obsessive thoughts are just destroying him and lead him to a negative outcome.
And there is a lot of this kind of thoughts. Girls usually suffer from a thought like, I am ugly. Everybody in the class will tell her that she is very beautiful, and boys run after her. But still, she thinks she is ugly. When we were writing down about good things and bad things that we see, when you give such tasks, usually there is mostly negativity, whether it's good or bad thing, it's almost all negative and just a bit of positivity. This girl wrote down in her notebook what good qualities such a worthless person like me can have. There was no way to change her mind. On the other hand, it appears as a positive obsessive thought, like you pass the exams, you're a genius here, you're talented, you don't even need to prepare or anything. It seems as good thoughts because they're self-asserting and supportive as a considered in psychology, but they also lead to self-destruction, meaning that the person is just giving up and not making any efforts, and again they come to a negative result. That is, any obsessive thoughts are only destructive, and they can only be negative. And I've been observing the same thing about myself, as the same thoughts come to my head, say this or that. And when you realize that there's too much going on in your head, and you need to stop and think why you're getting those obsessive thoughts, then you start getting thoughts of a different kind, like, well, you've got to explain your point of view. So, these thoughts are deceitful. And if you get carried away by these deceitful thoughts, at the end of the day you will realize that they were harmful because they lead to a resurgence of conflict. You, Yelena, as an expert that works with teenagers, have told us that when teenagers are answering questions about themselves, they put only negative things, is that correct? And it is very difficult to shift them from this thought. In fact, here we are approaching a topic that overwhelmed our society lately — mass shootings. When teenagers take weapons, go to their colleges or schools and start shooting their peers and teachers, these teens were driven by ordinary arrogance. So they all have the same problem — obsessive thoughts that everyone despised them that they were unfairly treated and nobody was noticing them. It was no more than an attempt to draw attention to themselves. And their suicide notes of those who managed to leave them, they describe these thoughts, right? Or later, police reveals their correspondence with their friends, where they wrote about it. After all, you, the experts, know this because you encounter such cases where teenagers get dominated by the idea that I will show everyone, I will do something that will make all people talk about me. They literally see these images in their heads, right? And today, when we're discussing these obsessive thoughts about suicide, we raise the question, what has pushed them to commit this act? so that others would talk about you. The same dynamics, the same motivation is seen among teen suicides as well. Today there is a severe problem of teens committing suicide. There are suicidal groups in social networks, Blue Whale, Silent House and so on. 
What trend can be seen? That when a teenager commits suicide, he becomes famous and everyone talks about him. The news talk about him and they become some sort of a suicidal idol in their environment, among their friends, in their social network. And the number of those who speak about this teenager, pay attention, it, shall we say, grows manifold. And what causes this phenomenon? Other teenagers looking at him or her, and imitation is very strong at that age, they begin to accept the very same thoughts, that in order to be meaningful, to be important, to be appreciated, to be recognized, this is the path. I'm voicing it in my own words. Their thoughts come a little differently in content, but the general idea is the same. In other words, the motive that lies at the core, right, is arrogance, self-importance, recognition among friends and punishment of the offenders. So, by committing mass shootings and by killing themselves, these teenagers intend to take revenge on their parents and teachers. But it's some kind of perverted form of heroism, which is being imposed on others, right? So, to become an idol post-mortem by committing some absolutely irrational… And here a question arises. So, who creates the greatest evil? This teen who took the gun in his hands and went to shoot his classmates? The mass media that spread this information, giving rise to more of such evil increases propagation, generates a new wave of this violence? Or is it those thought forces behind it which influence teenagers through obsessive thoughts that become like an order and make them commit this action? The mass media, since we have already mentioned it. After all, look, we can draw a parallel between mass media and terrorism. A parallel can also be drawn between the massacres and terrorism. What is the main idea and essence of any terrorist act? Attraction of the public. Public resonance. Yes, a resonance in the society and attraction of attention. And let's recall the Soviet Union. Indeed, there were no terrorist acts in the Soviet Union. Why? There was no point. Because the media simply ignored any kind of these situations that occurred in the state. Someone will say that this restricts the freedom of speech, and that it's a dictatorship, and so on. However, in reality, it was care for its population. Why? Because such incidents can lead to the deaths of thousands of people around the globe. And now the mass media, pardon me, the source of the mass media are the gadgets in our pockets. Even if we draw a parallel here, okay? Imitation is now popular, that's clear. It creates a resonance in the society. Even if we go back to the story when I was telling about a woman who saw the photos and the video of the double suicide. But she was an adult, she was mature and self-established. So you can imagine, or rather we can see how a person can be influenced through video production and digital media, among other things. But what if a teenager who is in some kind of negative state in desire for recognition, etc., watches this type of video production. 
Another interesting fact is that when these math shootings happen, children and teenagers are the first to know about it. How does this happen? For us adults it's a mystery. They run up to us saying, do you know what happened there? It means that they all find out about it first. That's why another question arises here. Who benefits from spreading this information among all social networks and everything else, if this leads not to a positive, but to a negative result? We can take into consideration the positive experience of the Scandinavian countries. There, at the legislative level, it is prohibited for mass media to spread information about suicides. And as we know it, their statistics are the best, meaning the number of deaths due to suicides, there is the lowest. And this is a fact, isn't it? A fact. So why is no one paying attention to this fact? It's a fact. And in Switzerland, when the suicide rate went up, if I remember well, there were a lot of suicides in the subway, so they prohibited. I think in Switzerland, I won't. Yes, in Switzerland, because it was a serious resonance. And they stopped. It is the most prosperous country in Europe, but the number of suicides began to grow. And no one could explain what was the core reason. They have everything there. First of all, why is the number growing? And secondly, what's happening? How to stop it? They just stopped covering this in the media, and suicide rates appear to reduce, at least those that were committed in the subway. Yes, and look, we are approaching quite a heavy topic, which is also present in our society. I mean the so-called maniacs or serial killers. How many similar cases do we know in our history and the history of the nearby states, as well as other countries around the world? I mean the case of having serial killers. They are able to commit so many murders. And yet something strange, almost metaphysical, is going on around these individuals. The mechanisms are unclear as to how people become maniacs, what causes people to commit mass murders, and how many imitators emerge while a certain killer acts. How many imitators does one killer cause to emerge? What kind of trend? Now, I have quite an interesting question for you, the experts. Have you encountered this phenomenon or not? Can you comment on that? Of course, modern psychiatry, forensic science and criminal psychology don't have answers to a number of questions. In particular, why do serial maniacs become what they become? This has been explained by severe childhood abuse, psychotrauma and sexual perversions in childhood or adolescence. But when you start studying their biographies, you learn one interesting thing. Anybody can become a maniac with any childhood, from any family, with any… Nothing happens to them that does not happen to any other person. I mean, each of us has some conflicts at school with teachers. Everyone has some kind of relationships, sometimes conflicting ones with their parents. Basically, they are ordinary people and very different, with different traits and with different upbringing conditions. There is no pattern, that is, we can't find a common factor that for certain would mean if this happens, then that person will become a serial killer. 
No, the nature of these obsessive thoughts, which it all actually starts with, cannot be determined either. And it all starts with obsessive thoughts. With thoughts, yes. Everything begins with thoughts. So they get thoughts with sadistic content, meaning they start to imagine how they would kill or rape someone. And if he accepts these thoughts and starts thinking it over in his head, on the one hand, this is unacceptable for a person. He feels these thoughts are alien, terrible, nauseatingly terrible. It's some kind of influence which a person feels very strongly. A struggle begins here. Sometimes, at this stage of the struggle, a person can end up making an action. There is a term for that. After an obsessive thought follows an obsessive action. So, when it becomes an action, then a person brings this fantasy, what used to be a fantasy, to life. And when they describe the state in which these actions are materialized, that is, this altered state of consciousness, it isn't normal. They describe it as a trance, or like insanity, like being possessed by a demon. By the way, in the interviews they say that there was some kind of force, some kind of demon or some evil spirit, like some sort of possession. This is exactly what they say. It's like it wasn't me who did that. I was just watching my body being forced by something to do that. After that, many describe a feeling of very strong pleasure, like strong enjoyment of power or psychosexual discharge, as they call it. Many of them did not have perversions in their childhood or in their teens. All that necrophilia and all those most terrible perversions they describe, those have already appeared in the process of committing a serious murders, the same influence of the same force basically imposing this model of behavior. I'd like to tell you about the experience of one of our participants. Being the head of the criminal investigation office in his hometown, he said, I asked criminals who committed a series of murders some questions while they were detained. There were those who committed three murders, five murders. So he told me that he used to sit down and talk to them. I'm just curious, tell me why you did this? They stayed silent. I will not record it. I'd like to sort it out for myself. This is off the record? Yes, off the record. A voice in my head ordered me to but I will not say it for the record. What is this voice? I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how unbearable the pressure was. I just could not resist the orders I heard inside my head. Right after this conversation, he went over to investigation officers and started asking them questions. Listen, are they as open with you? Yeah, if you listen to them, you will hear every other one telling you the same story. Well, now, if every other one is telling the same story and you never record it, you as investigator, as an expert, haven't you had any interest in this? It can be… At least some kind of doubt. What could it be? Mass psychosis? Well, what is mass psychosis? Today we watched video interviews with people from different countries of the world. What kind of psychosis is this that spreads throughout the entire planet? Does it mean that all our humankind is susceptible in this psychosis? We've prepared a video regarding the topic you've just touched upon. 
about serial killers. We will put it on TV so that everyone could watch it on the screen. And then we'll continue our discussion. Put it on, please. At a certain time, it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, make it in, making it into something which is almost in, like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point, you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on this on this kind of these kinds of to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event. And it happens. It, it happened in stages, gradually. It doesn't necessarily, not to me at least, happen overnight. My experience with that jumping off point where you begin to wonder if, if maybe actually doing it will give you that which is beyond just reading about it or looking at it. How long did you stay at that point before you actually assaulted someone? A couple of years. And what was I was dealing with there were very strong inhibitions against criminal behavior or violent behavior that had been conditioned into me, bred into me, in my environment, in my neighborhood, in my church, uh, in my school. Um, things which said, no, this is wrong. I mean, this, even to think of it is wrong, but it, certainly to do it is wrong. And you're on, well, I'm on that edge, and these, the last, the, the, you might say, the last vestiges of restraint. Uh, the barriers to actually doing something were being tested constantly and assault uh, assailed um, through the kind of fantasy life that was fueled largely by pornography. Do you remember what pushed you over that edge? Uh, we're talking about an influence which that is the influence of violent types of, of the the of, of Reaching that point where, you, where I knew that it was like something had, say, snapped, that I knew that, uh, that I couldn't control it anymore, that these barriers that, that I had, had been, uh, I'd learned as a child uh, had been instilled in me. Uh, again, uh, I, uh, another factor here that I haven't mentioned is the use of alcohol, but I think that what alcohol did in conjunction with, let's say, my exposure to pornography was alcohol reduced my inhibitions at the same time. Um, the, the, the fantasy life that was fueled by pornography uh, eroded them further. In the early days, you were nearly always about half drunk when you did these things, is that right? Yes, yes. Ted, after you committed your first murder, what was the emotional effect on you? What happened in the days after that? Coming out of some kind of horrible trance or, or dream, I wake up in the morning and, and realize what I had done. And with a clear mind and all my essential moral and ethical feelings intact at that moment, uh, uh, absolutely horrified that I was capable of doing something like that. You really hadn't known that before? Uh, there is just absolutely no way to describe first the brutal urge to do that kind of thing and then what happens is once it 
it has been more or less satisfied and recede, you might say, or spent. And this desensitization process that took place, uh, what was going on in your mind? Well, by desensitization, I, I describe it in specific terms, is that each time I'd harm someone, each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Now believe me, I didn't, it, the, the unique thing about how this worked, Dr. Dobson, is that I still felt in my regular life the full range of, of guilt and, and uh, remorse about other things, uh, regret and... Uh, but you had this compartmental... I deserve certainly the, the most extreme punishment society has, and I deserve... I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. I was young and I could say that I had everything, good body and sexual well-being. And of course, I wanted to get made. Until 30 years old I had a normal, wonderful life. I had money, cars, I had almost everything. There were always two people in me, this Mick who was observing the life from a side and another one who was taking part in this life. What does it mean to take off the being from a killed person, cut off his finger, immediately wash this thing in water and give it to a beloved girl? This, for example, I can't understand as human, but as an animal I think, I don't care. Once in Fastov city there was a boy. When I shoot his mother after she had said there was no money and I shoot his brother right in front of him, he was still in the bed. And I asked him, do you know where the money is? So a six or seven year old boy got up and said, let's go and look for it. And I shoot him for no reason at all. It was much easier for me to kill my own son, although I hardly even brought him up, than to kill innocent people because I recognized that it's not the same as small children. They simply were not my children. To kill my own son when you know that you gave birth to him is easy, but to kill an innocent child is very difficult. Today, maybe on Earth or maybe in space, there are some higher forces, whatever they call themselves, maybe they really exist and they can influence certain people, code certain programs from space or maybe from Earth, and those people should fulfill them. I believe that I've been prepared for this role and performed this task well, taking about the period of 1995-1996 year when I shoot 43 people. It wasn't the hardest life, as one might say, or like some extraordinary life. It was nothing more than the most ordinary human hunt, purely human hunt. The only difference compared to rabbit hunt or wolf hunt was that it was a hunt on people. There was an experiment with dead people, when I killed one woman, then another. And only with the dead one I was ordered to have sexual intercourse with her. Once again, an experiment on my physical body, can I do it or not? It is believed that I am a maniac killer, but in fact I am the biggest victim here. I was doing, seeing all the things and suffering the most. Well, what did they see after the fact? They came, cried, squealed, and that's it. But I did it all. I was killing these innocent children when they were looking at me. I was ordered to kill another 360 people, plus minus 10, in Germany. 
after I killed 40 people on the territory of Ukraine in 1995. I was ready to do it right away. In my opinion, it was a joke against feverish communism. It was a second series of murders, murders against mad nationalism. And the third series of murders was supposed to be against the plague of the 21st century, but it didn't happen. That's why the plague of the 21st century will begin. I am saying that, for example, if life on this planet carries on, if God or a higher power wants me to do it, or if I manage to fulfill it, I will definitely commit these murders. There will be a number of 360 victims, plus or minus 10, and no one knows who will be among these victims. If I am to be dismembered by cars or horses, I am not scared of it, which is why I assume that the series of the death penalty, maybe even public death penalty, should be executed, so that people realize that such mayhem is not allowed in Ukraine. I am interested in death more than in life. I am no longer interested in living. So many things I know and so many things I have seen. I can complete with those currently living on earth and the Dalai Lama and the Pope. I bet they haven't seen as much as I have, even in particular in terms of God. I want to die. Why? Because personally, as an individual, I am no longer interested in this life. Therefore, I stand for the death penalty towards me. I am satisfied I have committed a series of first-degree murders not involuntary manslaughter. I am being shown leniency, and I know I will be sentenced to death by firing squad, which is why I am happy. I have developed heart, or maybe also lung disease. Somehow it's hard to breathe. The age of 54 years old is not small. I don't know why me, why there have been 52 murders. It is not a one-time murder based on antipathy, or someone has vendetta against someone, someone is angry on someone, and, as a result, murder. 52 people have been killed for no reason. I haven't known those people. I am an ordinary person, not a superman or maniac, or… I am not something like this. During the investigation, I was telling the prosecutor that I had killed people for the purpose of robbery. No, I hadn't killed them for the purpose of robbery. How could these murders be committed for no reason? How clever these murders were! Nine of them happened in the USSR. Nine more were made abroad. I had been living abroad with nine murders. I was baptized by Mormons and American belief. I was interrogated by CIA and Interpol. And after these nine murders, I committed another 40. When I am killing, I am in an abnormal state. It is not my usual state, it is non-human state. Once it passes, I feel better and become a human again. I don't know, I might be influenced by something, but I still haven't known anything about it. That something which influences me is clever. There are many different forces on Earth, or maybe in space as well, that can influence a person. And I know I would never have gone through with this on my own. Maybe you guys should conduct some experiments on me. Maybe somehow put me to sleep maybe somehow drug me, so that I tell you something non-human in order to find out what it is. Maybe try electroshock. I will not seek forgiveness. You want it or not, but I am a killer. I know it is bad. People committed so many murders like me. Do not seek forgiveness. I would prefer death sentence, firing squad. I am in jail. I am sick. And I don't want to die right now, because it is important for me to find out why and how it has happened. Maybe one day it will become known, not because I want to be released, but to find it out. I assume I might be doomed to repeat the same things over and over again, 
I wouldn't like to have the same destiny with murders in my next life. I certainly repent. It is more than 100% I am repent. It is simply impossible to commit such acts. It is impossible. If I am ever forgiven, not by God, as priests are saying, that God will grant absolution for my sins, but by specialists, scientists and people, only then I will consider myself forgiven. And if a priest absolves me from all my sins, I will not consider myself forgiven. As a part of our today's game and discussions of the topic, consciousness and influence of thought forces that make use of human consciousness, yes? So, are they serial killers victims? Or they indeed the killers? Meaning, how are we supposed to treat them? How is society supposed to treat them? After all, it is clear that they should be isolated from society. It's obvious because they don't control themselves. There is a beast inside them that kills. But this phenomenon must be explored. The most interesting thing is that they often ask to be isolated. Many even ask for death penalty as they are aware of the risk for society. Many people ask, bequeath absolutely everything their body, brain, themselves during their lifetime to conduct experiments and studies. Yes, it should also be noted that the absolute majority of these maniacs do not desist you in detention. Moreover, they take it with relief. Judging by the video we've just watched, the most terrible punishment probably I've got an understanding in what is happening with this person. The most terrible punishment for him is not firing squad or the fact that he is in prison, but this misunderstanding of what was happening to him. He really cannot explain even to himself the horror he has experienced performing these actions and understand what he was driven by. He says, I would never have done it. He understands that. He doesn't resist any punishment. He no longer has an interest in life. He has only one strong interest left to understand what has been happening to him, because he himself cannot explain it. Well, yes. And now we can hear an absolutely reasonable and self-critical person who speaks in absolutely calm and meaningful way and really wants to figure it out. And this is a very interesting point. And pay attention, he asks specialists for help. He asks for help, yes. As one psychiatrist, there is a very interesting book that describes the life story of an American psychiatrist who was experiencing the same. He used to take barbiturates for a while, he was addicted to drugs, managed to come out of this psychotic state and returned to medical practice. In that almost abandoned hospital where he worked, he treated the most complicated and incurable patients who were left by many gurus with no prospect of recovery. And he describes that the symptoms of schizophrenia can be found absolutely in any person. Absolutely. This kind of state that mentally ill people describe, we can find in each of us, in our 
everyday life, but in smaller dose and less severe. These are the same negative destructive forces. He describes it very well. The way these obsessive thoughts come into his head with the content of killing his wife, there was no one around who was more devoted, gentle and caring. In moments of such, just these obsessive thoughts appeared. And he says that the only difference is that his patients make a career out of this, while the others still have the ability to cope with it somehow. Here a question arises. We've been talking all the time about thoughts. Why all this is very important? Thoughts to learn and observe them. There are thoughts that trigger those emotions, that then are accumulated in us, then burst out one day and lead someone to those irrational and impulsive actions. But the starting point in all mental disorders is these thoughts gradually turning into emotional intensity, and people simply don't track them, and often they are even not aware of it. Now, if you do a simple exercise, write down your thoughts, the way they come, then practically, well, here is one of the latest examples of such cases, even though I wrote down my thoughts. All these thoughts are often imperative, meaning they come in the form of orders. I recently woke up in the morning, in a good mood, have some normal and productive plans for a day, to work. A thought came in. Call that person. Well, take a look here for five minutes. These thoughts are light and unobtrusive, and if you have paid attention to these, at least an hour and a half or even half a day will go nowhere. Then later a state of devastation appears. Why? First of all, you are angry at yourself. Then surely the thoughts of accusation appear. Well, how could you? Half a day or an hour or even five minutes. That's it. These are not just thoughts. This is a state, and you have already lost energy for the whole day, and you have not done anything good this day, and then it all accumulates. If you are talking about the loss of energy, it means that it has to go somewhere. Of course. According to the law of energy conservation. Of course, these same thoughts carry energy. Bad thoughts, negative thoughts, they are very powerful. Well, how do we feel after we've gotten angry, offended, quarreled? These thoughts come in and must be colored with some kind of emotion. That's it. We gave our attention away. We lost energy. This is devastation. That is, a person was simply eaten by someone. Yes. I would like to share the story from the practice of the psychiatrist Buchanowski who participated in the capture and exposure of the crimes of such a serial maniac like Chikatilo. After he had worked a little on this topic, he was eager to learn more about the behavior of serial maniacs, to understand their motives, how people become like that. They launched their practice, they also worked with children who are prone to such behavior. For example, torturing animals, setting fire to something. One day, a mother with a 12-year-old child came to him and said that her child was happy to screw animals' heads, kill animals, and he could become like Chikatilo, but if he does, she would kill him and herself. Buchanowski and his team started exploring this teenager, and for quite a long time, literally for more than 10 years, they were helping him not to become a serial maniac. 
As a result, at some point he had already entered the university, stopped attending appointments, and after a while they found out that he had still committed three murders and 17 attacks. This case shows that even specialists who work with serial maniacs and study them, do not understand what's behind this phenomenon, how a person gets there, and what drives him. Then I have a question. If they had been working with him for quite a long time, and the results still turned out to be negative, so maybe this work is underway in the wrong area? Of course. Maybe it is worth redirecting attention, and the specialists should find the answers to exactly those questions which we have brought up today. And then there were simply no such characters as Chikatila or the guy you've been just talking about. So, there are no answers. Again, why? Firstly, because there is no understanding of the influence of third forces and the nature of consciousness, first of all, as well as its role. And there is no understanding how to cope with this. Yes. Because even the information that we have voiced today, those cases what read out, are telling that a person simply doesn't know what it is. He has never come across this before, no one can explain it to him, and thus he doesn't know how to behave. He does not know that in himself, how he can withstand it. That is, I mean, he does not recognize himself at this level. That's the saddest thing. It turns out that we know a lot about space, about the ocean. But we don't know about ourselves. And we know much less about ourselves, right? We simply don't understand what prevents us from getting along with ourselves and with other people in the world. Yes, when a person simply tosses and turns at night, cannot sleep, some obsessive thoughts are coming. And this is also perceived as norm when people are sitting down discussing and saying, how are you? I haven't had enough sleep. Why? I tossed and turned all night long, the thoughts overpowered me. And no one even thinks about what it means. But everyone is being silent and treating it with understanding. Why? Because everyone is experiencing this. The same thing for everyone. Really, everyone is experiencing this. And again, where are the answers to our questions? Physicists offer us to think about what will happen to the universe in billions of years, but we are interested. But we don't know what will happen to us tomorrow, to any of us. We do not know what is happening to us right now. Right now. This is what is interesting to us. Because what kind of life is this if it turns out that our thoughts are not ours, our consciousness is not ours, and this dictatorship is always present in us? Anyone can become a maniac. Everyone suffers and does not know how to become happy. Also at school, we are working, but we hit a dead end. There is a huge number of tests that are supposed to be conducted to prevent that same suicidal behavior. But more often, according to analysis and conversations with colleagues, exactly that children who are not at risk and are positively evaluated by all tests commit suicide. And so we, for example, are also at a loss as to how and what to do with it. And the most interesting thing is that we understand the importance of preventive measures in schools, to talk about life, the value of life, spiritual, moral values. 
about, well, let's say, to teach children to communicate with parents and each other in another way, and so on, and to teach parents to communicate with children. But then the next question arises, how can all this be transferred to a child, and how a child can be taught? Who can do this? And here we immediately confront that the teachers do not work on themselves, they do not learn and understand what their consciousness is, they do not live this way and do not have the same quality and culture of communication, as well as parents. And it turns out that there is no one to simply show an example to those teenagers how to be in a different state, how to communicate in a different way, how to differently relate to each other, but to show it on your personal example, not just words. And it turns out they start giving a lecture. These lectures lead nowhere, only cause teenagers irritation. And on the contrary, they provoke the following situation when a mother comes and says, look, don't join a certain group. The child had absolutely no idea, but his mother informed him about this, being scared. And he will have this interest. The thing is that, as a rule, actions and words diverge among many people nowadays. And what do the children see? They are told about one thing, and those who talk about it act completely different. Here the problem is. In fact, not only in teachers, parents or specialists of specific expertise, but it is a problem of a whole society. See how interesting it has been to examine the topics we've raised today. We started with the trigger, with a thought that comes to every person at home and daily life, some resentment, some kind of command, and then how it is all winding up and what it all ends up with. Yes, for someone this ends with the fact that they hurt themselves, and for others it turns into disastrous consequences, for instance, accidents or murders. That is, in my opinion, the society actually doesn't currently pay attention to these facts on purpose. In contrast, it's even nourishing all this, trying to suppress any attempts to bring it up, hiding behind the science shield, without answering specific questions. Even more, we have been studying the homicidal maniacs' cases for years and at least condemn it, but in society it's not condemned and is accepted as an absolutely normal thing. Or at least, we don't contract those who press the nuclear bomb button. Or, for example, open hatches for dropping the bombs. It is the mass extermination of those people who are considered normal and mentally healthy in society. But after all, ordinary people also lead states. Ordinary people, the same as we are, those who give such orders, and who are under the influence of the same forces, the same thoughts. Their consciousness is exactly the same. So what occurs in people's everyday life, the same happens in geopolitics. And look, what is interesting, is that psychiatry does not give answers to many questions, as we found out today. See, we've talked to you about maniacs. They all talk specifically about the influence, I quote, of the devilish forces. 
If we take a person with similar issues and bring him to you as professional psychologists, you will immediately begin to diagnosticate, right? And if such person is taken to a church, what will they do there and what will happen to him there? Exorcism. Possessed by demons. Rituals. Rituals. That's right. Ritualism will happen. That is, they will just start trying to bind to themselves. But it seems both the first and the second ones are experts in their fields. They seem to be taking care of a person. But in fact, neither the first nor the second method will do any good for the person. Actually, psychiatry and take all religions. The truth is, if we address to the knowledge in the religions of the world, they prove to have possessed and still possess the actual knowledge. Yes, they have already lost, they do not understand the essence of that knowledge, they have forgotten, while psychologists, unfortunately, have never known it, although they seem to be striving for it. There are sincere people among religious leaders too, who seek to help an ordinary person who comes with such questions, but can do nothing because he simply does not have the knowledge, for it has been lost in centuries. They come to you as experts, and you as experts cannot do anything, right? Right. Other than to put on a chemical stretch jacket, causing dependency. Religious advisors, psychiatrists and psychotherapists alike, people keep visiting them for years, that is, they bring them financial means, but people are getting no better. Yes, and how can they get better if a person has not changed himself, his attitude? He has not actually understood who he is and does not know how to use his tools. But it's the other way around. He is in their slavery, I mean the consciousness, the body with its instincts. Looking back, let's see how psychoanalysis has arisen. It is one of the first disciplines, if not actually the first one. It is a purely philosophical doctrine, but a great many people got infected with these ideas and are promoting this practice. Yes, it is well promoted. Yes, promoted very well. When you study the biography of that very fraud, even the psychoanalysis themselves are joking that if you do not want to be disappointed, read his works, but do not read about him. And it is known that over the years there has been treatment in this direction and in other psychoanalytic directions, and, in fact, do not lead to any significant results, but form a dependence between the patient or client and the psychotherapist, psychoanalyst. To put it mildly, it costs a lot of money for a person. A person wasting years of his time for nothing, being engaged into such kind of self-exploration, Based on my experience of working with patients, I have concluded that I don't understand and know where some mental illness, for instance, schizophrenia, comes from. But patients are afraid to tell about the inner state, because there is a fear of being condemned and that the treatment will be intensified. Then I told my patient honestly, you know, we don't know anything about it. The best of us and the source we all learned from is Kandinsky. There was such a psychiatrist. He wrote a little book, a very good one, about pseudo-hallucinations, because he himself was suffering from schizophrenia, and he eventually committed suicide during one of his schizophrenic exacerbations. 
You have your experience. I have learned something from books and have my own experience in observing the work of my consciousness, my thoughts. So we can combine our efforts and search for something together. In fact, it is so joyful when you meet an inquisitive researcher, a scientist, a specialist, a practitioner. It's just beyond words when you can freely express everything that interests you, exchange opinions, share relevant information and search together for that truth and work in the same direction with the patients as well. We are no different than they are. If physics, for example, is more specific science, then that what we have been talking about concerns literally every person. Therefore, every person is interested in these topics. While some work algorithm is given, and we are working in accordance with this algorithm, however, we see that the situation is not improving, but only getting worse. It means this algorithm does not work, and there is something else that has not been studied and understood by us yet. And maybe we should direct our energy towards the studying of this whole thing. Ordinary statistics. The situation is getting worse every year. Over one inch thick handbook with the new psychotropic drugs is published by pharmaceutical companies, and the number of depressions, neuroses, addictions, Suicide is increasing dramatically, and it says a lot. Every year new psychotherapeutic disciplines arise, and this also does not change the situation. Therefore, if these meetings continue, for me as a specialist, it would be interesting to hear the opinion of allied professionals, their point of view, how they see the situation, and then we will get some clear picture how we get on from there. I guess humanity can get a great benefit by looking into the nature of thoughts, because we can come to an understanding of our true nature this way. Because, after all, we perceived a thought as a part of ourselves. If this is not a part of us, then who we are? Who are we? Are all of us really mentally ill? And this is a question to all of you. And this is not taught in school. So, our slaves or free people? Here a question arises, right? I wanted to say that we are taught everything at school — math, Russian language — for so many hours. But in general, there is no subject that would teach us how to study ourselves. And when, for example, there is an exercise in psychology, when you say to the children, write down the answer to the question, who am I? The first reaction is, oh, that's easy, just five minutes and everything will be done. And right after the first sentence they say, oh, it would be better to have math. Meaning, it is so difficult and incomprehensible for children. We talked about the fact that both parents, adults, do not know this. Therefore, how can society be held and understand who you are if we ourselves do not know this. I also wanted to touch on a topic that is called dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder in psychiatry. There is a book, The Mysterious Story of Billy Milligan, which tells, this is a documentary book that is based on conversations with Billy Milligan himself and the authors, conversations with professors, medical doctors, who studied and treated Billy Milligan. After all, it is precisely the case of coming into contact with the vivid manifestation 
of those thought forces that we are talking about today. These are the forces that Igor Mihalich talked about in the programs. As written in the Alatra book, these are the so-called subpersonalities. Do you encounter this phenomenon in your professional practice or not? And what does science say about it? Of course we do. This is actually a multiple personality disorder or a dissociative personality disorder. That's what they call it. They explain that after any kind of intense stress, great shock, single blow traumas, a person may experience such a disorder when a part of his consciousness becomes like a separate self. And there appears a second, third, fourth of such I, and there can be a lot of such I's, but this is precisely the result of the impact of an intense stress factor. But in fact, when you study the story of these people, even the story of Billy Milligan, you try to understand what happened. This is also described in the book about him. These eyes are so different, have different abilities, characters, manifestations, qualities, inclinations. And when you observe it, you understand that this is really some other individual personality. And again, in psychiatry there is no answer to this question. What happens in this case? What is being proposed as an answer does not explain this phenomenon. Plus, besides multiple personalities, there are other psychiatric diagnoses in which it manifests itself, such as schizophrenia, for example. Well, can schizophrenia or, as he said, multiple personality disorder explain that? We can take the same Billy Milligan. He had 60 sub-personalities, 25 of which were the most active, that made direct contact and communicated with both the doctors and the author of the book. At the same time, there were people of different nationalities and professions. He suddenly began to speak Yiddish and then Serbian. It is obvious that there are different personalities in a single human. What we read in the Alatra book and what Igor Mikhailovich talks about in the programs is the only acceptable explanation so far. A state of subpersonality with all its manifestations is described there. These are personalities of the previous incarnations, with their own experience, tempo, characteristic features of consciousness, history, etc. And once again, we encounter a question with no answers to it, right? On the other hand, there is a bright perspective for the development of the science, am I correct? But if talking about it again, we observe the same manifestations with children, and every specialist, psychiatrist and psychotherapist encounter these things, when these subpersonalities are starting to appear in the behavior of a child, and this behavior is typically inadequate. Then out of the blue the kid begins to demonstrate some inclinations and skills, which he or she hasn't had enough time to learn. Based on age of three, four, five years old, meaning it is quite young age. Or when the four, five-year-old children suddenly start to speculate in the manner of the wise old people do. 
Once a five-year-old boy was brought in for a consultation with a psychologist, myself. He had some issues at Aikido classes, he didn't like something there. It was unclear what had really happened, and I needed to talk to this boy. I've asked him the manner one usually talks to a child. Who knows, maybe he has conflict with someone and remains silent. I ask, how is everything? Do you actually like martial arts, Aikido, coach, and in general, do you like attending the classes? He looks at me and says, you know, I would like to respond yes, but in fact, everything is not that easy. And I realize now, prior to that moment, we have communicated in a different way. We have played, painted, figured something out, or completed some tasks, and suddenly the child says something like that, and his whole face and eyes expression have changed, which is why I realized that it is not him who is talking to me right now. We have many similar cases in our practice. After reading the information about subpersonalities in the Alatra book, I remembered a case in my practice with a 40-year-old woman who had a heart attack with cardiogenic shock, cardiac arrest, clinical death, and as a consequence she was put into intensive care. Right after this illness, she started experiencing the so-called attacks where she didn't remember herself. But during these moments she was speaking a language no one knew. She consulted different psychiatrists, but they were not able to explain this phenomenon, and she was suffering because of that. So she decided she was going crazy, and people around her also confirmed that it was something wrong with her. Later on they found a linguist, and it turned out she was speaking a 2,000-year-old language. I don't remember the name of that nationality. At that point I didn't understand what was that. She told me the story when she got into intensive care once again because of her repeated heartaches, and, based on her previous health record, that was exactly the place where she was put into. When I found out everything about subpersonalities from the Elettra book, I finally realized what kind of manifestations was that. In fact, anyone can meet them in our everyday life. In my practice, I encounter the fact that there are so many unexplained and incomprehensible things, and it is great that we've gathered and discussed the questions that are not being asked and talked about in some other forms of communication. I know that many specialists were ready to participate in our discussion, but simply could not come for various reasons. And I think that we need to bring more specialists of different expertise, continue with these topics, find answers to these questions, as it is more relevant than ever and should immediately be resolved. I believe it is very good for our personal improvement and for those topics brought into this discussion to raise them and to talk about them. The format of the game encourages to propose various hypotheses, express opinions and share own experience. Basically, everyone is playing with no danger for their reputation. Everyone is free to express their point of view and use terminology that, I would say, is acceptable within the framework of the game. Many experts have already understood that there is something else and we can't find answers to the questions that we face in our everyday practice. And we see that what is presented to us is not right. 
So many people are looking for the answers to these questions, and I think that many of them will need it and would like to join, share their experience, and so we can continue discussing those problems. Yes, it's interesting. Today we've talked about and hypothesized about the third forces. Today we've exchanged their personal experience that everyone receives these negative thoughts, including those about hurting even our close ones. But not everyone follows them, not everyone brings it into action. After all, not everyone becomes an aggressor, a killer, especially a serial killer. Why does it happen that someone falls for it, being influenced, let's say, by these third forces, while someone else, also being influenced by them, is not led by it? So these people have some kind of immunity, right? Yes. What? What is it all about? Some people come and say, yes, there are such thoughts, but I will not listen to them, I don't need this, while others are so obsessed with them. And so the action follows. As thinkers in ancient times used to say, beware of your thoughts, they become actions, and everything goes on from there. And, of course, it has not been without the help of society and its established pattern. In fact, those people, especially teenagers, when negative thoughts come, they immediately begin to think about themselves that I'm special because this has come only to me. And when he sees that this pattern of behavior is being promoted in the mass media, he already imagines himself as this, let's say, negative, but still a hero. And he begins to develop this in himself even further by being driven by that message. Therefore, I believe that one of the main tasks of this communication format is to actually change the perspective on questions like this and show people that this phenomenon takes place and everyone encounters this phenomenon and everyone can cope with it. Yes, and this is not something unique that is inherent only to me and to no one else. Actually, the experience of Gnostics in this regard is very interesting. They shared their thoughts, meaning they discussed the thoughts that came to them, no matter how terrible they might seem, no matter how furious their consciousness became, shouting, keep quiet, don't talk. After all, when everyone is being silent about their thoughts, everyone lives in their own cocoon. It turns out that this cannot be talked about because it is condemned and you will be diagnosed with some mental illness. And when you talk about it openly and understand that the other person has it, and the third one, and the fourth one has it too, then in fact it's typical for everyone, as these thoughts come to everyone. So probably these thoughts come to humans similar to online spamming. This is like a hypothesis. It comes to a person, and when you realize that it comes to everyone, then it's easier to refuse it and not to carry out this order which has come, not to bring this negative idea into action and not to put it into practice. Therefore, if people shared it openly, it would probably be easier for many to cope with it. This is why I think that precisely this format of communication, discussion, might contribute to removing this taboo on the discussion of these negative thoughts. And it is not worth being silent about it, it is worth talking to each other more openly as well as in the professional environment. And so, to be honest, the same thought came to me too, so that the patients do not feel so unique in a negative way, assuming that there is nothing you can do about it. But you can, everything is possible. We can overcome any difficulties if we combine our efforts. Well, we have done it. 
The topic that we've discussed today is quite sensitive and interesting. It needs to be discussed and studied further. Thank you so much for coming, for your sincere interest in the issues we've raised today and for expressing your points of view. We'd like to inform you now that we will continue developing this project further. Experts from different fields are joining and will keep joining, so the work will be continued. Thank you very much and see you again. Thank you. In fact, it was very interesting to play. It will be interesting to hear the opinion of other specialists and we will follow the programs. Thank you. It was interesting. I also want to thank everyone here. I've learned a lot of new things for myself and understood my experience a little more from the point of view of different specialists. The format of the game was very interesting to me, very useful to my professional experience and very informative in terms of working on myself. I will be pleased to listen to the opinions of other specialists in your next programs, take part in them and be impatiently looking forward to being in the upcoming programs. I've received a very valuable experience today, a lot of new knowledge, and I'd love to sort these questions out for myself. And if I figure them out for myself, like probably everyone else does, then we can really help other people figure it out as well. But first of all, it's necessary to figure it out for myself. That's why I wish all of us success in this project. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for exchanging our experience. It is interesting that here we have specialists from different fields and countries. And countries and such a multilateral research of the problem that exists now, scientific or practical. And for the opportunity to sincerely and honestly talk about ourselves and about what we come across in our practice. For the opportunity to raise such questions that are not accepted to raise in professional communities. Normally we are hesitating to talk about these topics. I've taken part in this project mainly because I see an opportunity to break the stalemate in the disciplines of science we represent with our joint communication and experience exchange. We therefore can help people and to understand ourselves and what we are doing in general. Thank you. I'm grateful. Enjoy my colleagues in saying thank you for this project. First of all, what is very important and valuable to me is the fact that I've understood that without figuring out my own problems, without understanding my own nature and getting rid of my own fears, I can't help anyone else. Now I have seen these opportunities, the prospect that it is possible for each of us. I've understood that the job of a psychiatrist and psychotherapist and psychologist is first of all a very deep work on oneself and one of the paths to self-knowledge. Now I have seen such an opportunity, such a perspective. I'm very glad, so my deepest gratitude to everyone. There is a quotation, studying ourselves, we learn to understand others. Therefore, we should begin with ourselves.
Thank you all so much for taking the time and finding the opportunity to come and join the game of professionals. In return, we invite experts from various sciences, including related ones, people who have faced similar manifestations in themselves, around themselves, in everyday life. It is very interesting. An opinion of each person is important to us. We are already working in this direction. Quite a few experts from different countries of the world have already joined us. We are already conducting a number of studies in this direction. We still have a lot of work ahead and many interesting programs. Please join us. It's going to be interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best.